Section 11 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 3, Verses 1 to 8. The Beginnings of Some Christians Very Feeble. The Necessity of the New Birth. The Spirit's Operation Like the Wind. John, Chapter 3, Verses 1 to 8. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night, and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb, and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The conversation between Christ and Nicodemus, which begins with these verses, is one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. Nowhere else do we find stronger statements about those two mighty subjects, the new birth and salvation by faith in the Son of God. The servant of Christ will do well to make himself thoroughly acquainted with this chapter. A man may be ignorant of many things in religion, and yet be saved. But to be ignorant of the matters handled in this chapter is to be in the broad way which leadeth to destruction. We should notice, firstly, in these verses, what a weak and feeble beginning a man may make in religion, and yet finally prove a strong Christian. We are told of a certain Pharisee named Nicodemus, who, feeling concerned about his soul, came to Jesus by night. There can be little doubt that Nicodemus acted as he did on this occasion from the fear of man. He was afraid of what man would think, or say, or do, if his visit to Jesus was known. He came by night, because he had not faith and courage enough to come by day. And yet, there was a time afterwards when this very Nicodemus took our Lord's part in open day in the council of the Jews. Doth our law judge any man, he said, before it hear him, and know what he doeth? John chapter 7, verse 51. Nor was this all. There came a time when this very Nicodemus was one of the only two men who did honor to our Lord's dead body. He helped Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus, when even the apostles had forsaken their master and fled. His last things were more than his first. Though he began ill, he ended well. The history of Nicodemus is meant to teach us that we should never despise the day of small things in religion. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 We must not set down a man as having no grace, because his first steps towards God are timid and wavering, and the first movements of his soul are uncertain, hesitating, and stamped with much imperfection. We must remember our Lord's reception of Nicodemus. 
he did not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax which he saw before him matthew chapter twelve verse twenty like him let us take inquirers by the hand and deal with them gently and lovingly in everything there must be a beginning it is not those who make the most flaming professions of religion at first who endure the longest and prove the most steadfast judas iscariot was an apostle when nicodemus was just groping his way slowly into full light yet afterwards when nicodemus was boldly helping to bury his crucified saviour judas iscariot had betrayed him and hanged himself this is a fact which ought not to be forgotten we notice secondly in these verses what a mighty change our lord declares to be needful to salvation and what a remarkable expression he uses in describing it he speaks of a new birth he says to nicodemus except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of god he announces the same truth in other words in order to make it more plain to his hearer's mind except a man be born of water and of the spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of god by this expression he meant nicodemus to understand that no one could become his disciple unless his inward man was as thoroughly cleansed and renewed by the spirit as the outward man is cleansed by water to possess the privileges of judaism a man only needed to be born of the seed of abraham after the flesh to possess the privileges of christ's kingdom a man must be born again of the holy ghost the change which our lord here declares needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one it is not merely reformation or amendment or moral change or outward alteration of life it is a thorough change of heart will and character it is a resurrection it is a new creation it is a passing from death to life it is the implanting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above it is the calling into existence of a new creature with a new nature new habits of life new tastes new desires new appetites new judgments new opinions new hopes and new fears all this and nothing less than this is implied when our lord declares that we all need a new birth this change of heart is rendered absolutely necessary to salvation by the corrupt condition in which we are all without exception born that which is born of the flesh is flesh our nature is thoroughly fallen the carnal mind is enmity against god romans chapter eight verse seven we come into the world without faith or love or fear toward god we have no natural inclination to serve him or obey him and no natural pleasure in doing his will left to himself no child of adam would ever turn to god the truest description of the change which we all need in order to make us real christians is the expression new birth this mighty change it must never be forgotten we cannot give to ourselves the very name which our lord gives to it is a convincing proof of this he calls it a birth no man is the author of his own existence and no man can quicken his own soul we might as well expect a dead man to give himself life as expect a natural man to make himself spiritual a power from above must be put into exercise even that same power which created the world second corinthians chapter four verse six 
Man can do many things, but he cannot give life either to himself or to others. To give life is the peculiar prerogative of God. Well may our Lord declare that we need to be born again. This mighty change, we must, above all, remember, is a thing without which we cannot go to heaven, and could not enjoy heaven if we went there. Our Lord's words on this point are distinct and express. Except a man be born again, he can neither see nor enter the kingdom of God. Heaven may be reached without money or rank or learning, but it is clear as daylight, if words have any meaning, that nobody can enter heaven without a new birth. We should notice, lastly, in these verses, the instructive comparison which our Lord uses in explaining the new birth. He saw Nicodemus perplexed and astonished by the things he had just heard. He graciously helped his wondering mind by an illustration drawn from the wind. A more beautiful and fitting illustration of the work of the Spirit it is impossible to conceive. There is much about the wind that is mysterious and inexplicable. Thou canst not tell, says our Lord, whence it cometh and whither it goeth. We cannot handle it with our hands or see it with our eyes. When the wind blows, we cannot point out the exact spot where its breath first began to be felt, and the exact distance to which its influence shall extend. But we do not on that account deny its presence. It is just the same with the operations of the Spirit in the new birth of man. They may be mysterious, sovereign, and incomprehensible to us in many ways, but it is foolish to stumble at them because there is much about them that we cannot explain. But whatever mystery there may be about the wind, its presence may always be known by its sound and effects. Thou hearest the sound thereof, says our Lord. When our ears hear it whistling in the windows, and our eyes see the clouds driving before it, we do not hesitate to say, There is wind. It is just the same with the operations of the Holy Spirit in the new birth of man. Marvelous and incomprehensible as his work may be, it is work that can always be seen and known. The new birth is a thing that cannot be hid. There will always be visible fruits of the Spirit in every one that is born of the Spirit. Would we know what the marks of the new birth are? We shall find them already written for our learning in the first epistle of St. John. The man born of God believes that Jesus is the Christ, doth not commit sin, doeth righteousness, loves the brethren, overcomes the world, keepeth himself from the wicked one. This is the man born of the Spirit. Where these fruits are to be seen, there is the new birth of which our Lord is speaking. He that lacks these marks is yet dead in trespasses and sin. John chapter 5 verse 1, chapter 3 verse 9, chapter 2 verse 29, chapter 3 verse 14, chapter 5 verse 4, chapter 5 verse 18. And now let us solemnly ask ourselves whether we know anything of the mighty change of which we have been reading. Have we been born again? Can any marks of the new birth be seen in us? Can the sound of the Spirit be heard in our daily conversation? Is the image and the superscription of the Spirit to be discerned in our lives? Happy is the man who can give satisfactory answers to these questions. A day will come when those who are not born again will wish that they had never been born at all. Notes 
John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Verse 1. There was a man, etc. The close connection of the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus with the end of the preceding chapter ought to be carefully noted. In fact, the original Greek contains a connecting particle, which our translators have omitted to express in our version. The chapter should begin, And there was a man, or Now there was a man. The conversation took place when our Lord was in Jerusalem, at the time of the Passover. Nicodemus was one of those who saw the miracles which Jesus did, and was so much struck by what he saw, that he sought out our Lord in order to converse with him. Of the Pharisees The striking variety of character in those who were brought to believe on Christ while he was on earth ought not to be overlooked. His disciples were not drawn exclusively from any one class. As a general rule, none were more bitterly opposed to him and his doctrines than the Pharisees, yet here we see that nothing is impossible with grace. Even a Pharisee became an inquirer, and ultimately a disciple. Nicodemus and St. Paul are standing proofs that no heart is too hard to be converted. The third chapter shows us Jesus teaching a proud, moral Pharisee. The fourth will show him teaching an ignorant, immoral Samaritan woman. None are too bad to be taught by Christ. A RULER OF THE JEWS The civil government of the Jews at this time, we must remember, was in the hands of the Romans. When Nicodemus is called a ruler, it means that he was a chief person among the Jews, probably in high ecclesiastical position, and certainly a famous religious teacher. See the tenth verse. Verse 2. The same came by night. The fact here recorded appears to me to show that Nicodemus was influenced by the fear of man, and was afraid or ashamed to visit Jesus by day. The view maintained by some, that we ought not to blame him for coming by night, because it was the quietest time for conversation, and the time when an interview was least liable to be interrupted, or because the Jewish teachers were in the habit of receiving inquirers by night, appears to me undeserving of attention. I am confirmed in this opinion by the fact that on the only other occasions where Nicodemus is mentioned, he is specially described as the man who came to Jesus by night. This repeated expression appears to me to imply blame. John chapter 7, verse 50, chapter 19, verse 39. How anyone can waste time, as some famous commentators do, in speculating how the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus was reported, is to my mind perfectly astonishing. To hint, as one has done, that Jesus must have told St. John about the conversation afterwards, or that St. John must have been present, appears to me to strike a blow to the very root of inspiration. Both here and elsewhere, frequently, St. John describes things which he only knew by the direct inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Rabbi This expression was a name of dignity among the Hebrews, signifying doctor or master. Cruden says that the name came originally from the Chaldees, and that it was not used before the time of captivity, except in describing the officers of the kings of Assyria and Babylon. Thus we find the names of Rab Saris and Rab Shekha, Second Kings, chapter 18, verse 17. The use of the word here by Nicodemus was intended to mark his respect for our Lord. We know. Different reasons have been assigned for Nicodemus's use of the plural number in this place. 
whom did he mean when he said we? Some say that he meant himself and many of his brethren among the Pharisees. Some say that he meant himself and the secret believers of all classes mentioned at the end of the last chapter. Some say, as Lightfoot, that he meant no one in particular, but used the plural for the singular according to an idiom common in all languages. He only meant, it is commonly known. I ventured the suggestion that Nicodemus probably used the plural number intentionally, on account of its vagueness, and avoided the singular number from motives of caution, that he might not commit himself too much. Even at the present day people will talk of we in religion long before they will talk of I. Weak faith strives to be hid in a crowd. Thou art a teacher come from God. This cautious sentence is an instructive indication of the state of Nicodemus's mind. He was naturally a timid, hesitating, slow-moving man. That Jesus was somebody remarkable, he was convinced by his miracles. That he might possibly be the Messiah had probably crossed his mind, and the more so because he doubtless knew of the ministry of John the Baptist, and had heard that John spake of one greater than himself who was yet to come. But until he can make out more about Jesus, by private conversation, he declines to commit himself to any stronger statement than that before us. The Greek words would be more literally rendered, From God thou hast come a teacher. Lightfoot thinks that Nicodemus here refers to the long cessation of prophecy, which had now lasted for four hundred years. During this long period no one had appeared from God to teach the once-favored Jewish nation, as the prophets did of old. But now, he seems to say, thou hast appeared, as the prophets did in former times, to teach us. No man can do these miracles with him. This sentence has been justly called an illustration of one great purpose of our Lord's miracles. They arrested men's attention. They were evidences of a divine mission. They showed that he who wrought them was no ordinary person and ought to be listened to. I am aware that some have thought that Nicodemus attached too much weight to our Lord's miracles, and have boldly asserted that miracles are no necessary proof of a divine mission, seeing that Antichrist will appear with signs and lying wonders. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse nine, Revelation chapter thirteen verse fourteen. In reply, it might be sufficient to remark that our Lord Himself declared that His works bore witness that the Father had sent Him. John chapter five verse thirty six chapter 10 verse 25 chapter 15 verse 24 but i also think that sufficient stress is not laid on the expression these miracles that thou doest the character and quality of our lord's miracles were such as to prove his divine commission false teachers and antichrists may be permitted to work some miracles like the magicians who withstood moses but there is a point beyond which antichrist and his servants cannot go such miracles as our Lord worked could only be wrought by the finger of God. I therefore think that Nicodemus's argument was just and correct. It is, moreover, worthy of note that the expression he uses is precisely the same that was used by St. Peter when describing our Lord's ministry and miracles. He says, God was with him. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. The expression, God being with a man, is a common phrase in the scriptures denoting the possession of certain special gifts or graces from god beyond those ordinarily given to men thus first samuel chapter sixteen verse eight chapter three verse nineteen 
and chapter 18, verses 12 to 14. Verse 3. Jesus answered. The question has often been asked, to what did our Lord answer? No question was put to him. What is the connecting link between the words of Nicodemus and the solemn statement contained in the first words which our Lord addressed to him? I believe the true reply to these questions is that our Lord, as on many other occasions, made answer according to what he saw going on in Nicodemus's heart. He knew that the inquirer before him, like all the Jews, was expecting the appearance of Messiah, and was even suspecting that he had found him. He therefore begins by telling him at once what was absolutely needful if he would belong to Messiah's kingdom. It was not a temporal kingdom, as he vainly supposed, but a spiritual one. It was not a kingdom in which all persons born of the seed of Abraham would, as a matter of course, have a place because of their birth. It was a kingdom in which grace, not blood, was the indispensable condition of admission. The first thing needful in order to belong to Messiah's kingdom was to be born again. Men must renounce all idea of privileges by reason of their natural birth. All men, whether Jews or Gentiles, must be born again, born anew, born from above by a spiritual birth. Nicodemus, our Lord seems to say, if you want to know how a man is to become a member of Messiah's kingdom, understand this day that the first step is to be born again. Think not, because Abraham is your father, that Messiah will acknowledge you as one of his subjects. I tell you at once, that the first thing you and all other men need is a new birth. I am quite aware that several other explanations have been given of the link between Nicodemus's remark and our Lord's opening assertion. I will only say, that the one I have given appears to me by far the simplest and most satisfactory. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. This expression, which is peculiar to St. John's Gospel, has been already commented on, John chapter 1, verse 51. But it is useful to remark, in considering the verse before us, that the phrase is never used except in connection with some statement of great importance and solemnity. Except a man. The Greek word which our version has rendered a man would be more literally translated any one or any person. The change called the new birth, our Lord would have us know, is of universal necessity. Nobody can be saved without it. Born again. The Greek word here rendered again might be translated with equal correctness from above, i.e., from heaven or from God. It is so translated in this chapter, verse 31, and in four other places in the New Testament, John chapter 19, verse 11, James chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. In one other place, Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, it is again. Many commentators in every age, as Origen, Cyril, Theophylact, Bullinger, Lightfoot, Erasmus, Bengal, have maintained strongly that born from above and not born again is the true and better translation of the phrase kramer's version renders it born from above and our own translators have allowed it in a marginal reading my own impression agrees with that of most commentators that born again is the right translation for one thing it seems most probable that nicodemus understood our lord to mean born again or else he would hardly have asked the question can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born for another thing, 
the greek words used in four other places where regeneration is spoken of in the new testament admit of no other meaning than being born again and could not possibly be rendered born from above see first peter chapter one verses three and twenty three matthew chapter nineteen verse twenty eight and titus chapter three verse five the point is happily not one of importance and men may agree to differ about it if they cannot convince one another every true christian is undoubtedly born from above by the quickening power of god in heaven as well as born again by a second spiritual birth the meaning of our lord when he said except a man be born again is unhappily a subject on which there is a wide difference of opinion in the church of christ the expression at any rate cannot be said to stand alone it is used six times in the gospel of st john once in the first epistle of st peter and six times in the first epistle of st john john chapter one verse thirteen chapter three verses three five six seven and eight first peter chapter one verse twenty three first john chapter two verse twenty nine chapter three verse nine chapter four verse seven chapter five verses one four and eighteen common sense and fair interpretation of language point out that born again born of the spirit and born of god are expressions so intimately connected with one another that they mean one and the same thing the only question is what do they mean some think that to be born again means nothing more than an outward reformation or such outward conformity as a proselyte might yield to a new set of rules this is an almost obsolete and utterly unsatisfactory interpretation it makes our lord tell nicodemus nothing more than he might have learned from the heathen philosophers such as socrates plato or aristotle or that he might have heard from any rabbi about the duties of a proselyte from heathenism to judaism some think that to be born again means to be admitted into the church of christ by baptism and to receive a spiritual change of heart inseparably connected with baptism this again is an unsatisfactory interpretation for one thing it seems improbable that the first truth which our lord would propound to an inquiring pharisee would be the necessity of baptism he certainly never did so on any other occasion for another thing if our lord only meant baptism it is difficult to account for the astonishment and perplexity which nicodemus expressed on hearing our lord's words baptism was not a thing with which a pharisee was unacquainted in the jewish church proselytes were baptized last but not least it is clear from st john's first epistle that to be born again born of the spirit or born of god means something much greater than baptism the picture which the apostle there gives of the man who is born of god could certainly not be given of the man who is baptized the true view of the expression i believe to be this being born again means that complete change of heart and character which is produced in a man by the holy ghost when he repents believes on christ and becomes a true christian it is a change which is frequently spoken of in the bible in ezekiel it is called taking away the stony heart and giving a heart of flesh giving a new heart and putting within a new spirit ezekiel chapter eleven verse nineteen chapter thirty six verse twenty six in acts it is called repentance and conversion acts chapter three verse nineteen in romans it is called being alive from the dead romans chapter six verse thirteen in corinthians it is called being a new creature second corinthians chapter five verse seventeen in ephesians it is called being quickened ephesians chapter two verse one in colossians it is called 
putting off the old man and putting on the new. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. In Titus it is called the washing of regeneration. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. In Peter it is called being called out of darkness into light and being made a partaker of the divine nature. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. In John it is called passing from death to life. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. I believe that all these expressions come to the same thing in the end. They are all the same truth, only viewed from different sides. They all mean that mighty inward change of heart, which our Lord here calls a new birth, and which John the Baptist foretold would specially characterize Messiah's kingdom. He was to baptize not with water, but with the Holy Ghost. Our Lord begins his address to Nicodemus by taking up his forerunner's prediction. He tells him that he must be born again, or baptized with the Spirit. Human nature is so entirely corrupt, diseased, and ruined by the fall that all who would be saved must be born again. No lesser change will suffice. They need nothing less than a new birth. He cannot see. This expression has received two interpretations. Some think that it means he cannot understand or comprehend. Others think that it means he cannot enter, enjoy, partake of, or possess. The last I believe to be the true meaning of the expression. The first is truth, but not the truth of this text. The second is confirmed by the language used in the fifth verse, and is a common form of speech of which there are many instances in the Bible. Thus we find, to see life, John chapter 3, verse 36, to see corruption, Psalm 16, verse 10, to see death, John chapter 8, verse 51, to see evil, Psalm 90, verse 15, to see sorrow, Revelation chapter 18, verse 7. THE KINGDOM OF GOD This expression means that spiritual kingdom which Messiah came into the world to set up, and of which all believers are the subjects, the kingdom which is now small and weak and despised, but which shall be great and glorious at the second advent. Our Lord declares that no man can belong to that kingdom and be one of its subjects without a new birth. To belong to the covenant of Israel with all its temporal privileges, a man need only be born of Jewish parents. To belong to Messiah's kingdom, a man must be born again of the Spirit and have a new heart. Luther's remark on this verse, quoted by Steer, is worth reading. He supposes our Lord to say, My doctrine is not of doing and of leaving undone, but of being and becoming, so that it is not a new work to be done, but the being new created, not the living otherwise, but the being new born. The unvarying suitableness of our Lord's teaching to the special state of mind of those whom he taught deserves observation. To the young ruler fond of his money, he says, Sell all and give to the poor. To the multitude craving food, he says, Labor not for the meat that perisheth. To the Samaritan woman coming to draw water, he commends living water. To the Pharisee proud of his birth, as a son of Abraham, he says, Ye must be born again. Luke chapter 18 verse 22, John chapter 6 verse 27, chapter 4 verse 10. Verse 4. Nicodemus saith, How? The question of Nicodemus is precisely one of those which the natural ignorance of man in spiritual things prompts a person to ask. 
just as the samaritan woman in the fourth chapter put a carnal meaning on our lord's words about living water and the jews in the sixth chapter put a carnal meaning on the bread of god so nicodemus puts a carnal meaning on the expression born again there is nothing which the heart of man in every part and every age of the world is so slow to understand as the work of the holy ghost our minds are so gross and sensuous that we cannot take in the idea of an outward and spiritual operation unless we can see things and touch things in religion we are slow to believe them when he is old this expression seems to indicate that nicodemus himself was an old man when this conversation took place if this be so it is only fair in judging his case to make some allowance for the slowness with which old age receives new opinions and specially in the things of religion at the same time it supplies an encouraging proof that no man is too old to be converted one of our lord's first converts was an old man verse five except born of water and of the spirit this famous text has unhappily given rise to widely differing interpretations on one thing only respecting it nearly all commentators are agreed it is the same truth that is laid down in the third verse only laid down with greater fullness in compassion to nicodemus's weakness of understanding but what does it mean the expression born of water is peculiar to this place and occurs nowhere else in the bible it cannot be literally interpreted no one can be literally born of water what then does the phrase signify when can it be said of any one that he is born of water and of the spirit the first and commonest interpretation is to refer the text entirely to baptism and to draw from it the inseparable connection of baptism and spiritual regeneration according to this view of the text our lord tells nicodemus that baptism is absolutely necessary to salvation and it is the appointed means of giving new birth to the heart of man if you wish to belong to my kingdom you must be born again as i have already said and if you wish to be born again the only way to obtain this mighty blessing is to be baptized except a man be regenerated or born again by baptism he cannot enter my kingdom this is the view of the text which is maintained by the fathers by the roman catholic writers and by the lutheran commentators and by many english divines down to the present day it is a view which is supported by much learning and by many strange and far-fetched arguments such as genesis chapter one verse two it is however a view which to my own mind is utterly unsatisfactory the second and less common interpretation is to refer the text partly to baptism and partly to that real regeneration of heart which a man may receive like the penitent thief without having been baptized according to this view our lord tells nicodemus that a new birth is absolutely necessary to salvation and that to be baptized or born of water is one of the appointed ways by which regeneration is effected those who hold this view deny as stoutly as any of them there is any inseparable connection between baptism and regeneration they hold that multitudes are born of water who are never born of the spirit but they maintain that the word water must be intended to point us to baptism and that by the use of the expression born of water our lord meant to defend both john's baptism and his own and to show their value this is the view of the text which is maintained by some few of the best roman catholic writers such as rupertus and ferris by almost all the english reformers and by many excellent commentators down to the present day 
it is a view which to my own mind seems not much more satisfactory than the former one already described on account of the strange consequences which it involves the third and much the least common interpretation is to refer the text entirely to the regeneration of man's heart and to exclude baptism altogether from any place in it according to this view our lord explains to nicodemus by the use of a figure what he had meant when he spoke of being born again he would have nicodemus know that a man must have his heart as thoroughly cleansed and renewed by the spirit as the body is cleansed and purified by water he must be born of the spirit working on his inward nature as water works on the material body in short he must have a clean heart created in him if he would belong to messiah's kingdom most of those who take this view consider that baptism was certainly meant to point to the change of heart described in the text but that this text was meant to point out something distinct from baptism and even more important than baptism this is the view which i believe to be the true one and to which i unhesitatingly adhere those who hold that baptism is not referred to in this text are undoubtedly a small minority among theologians but their names are weighty among them will be found calvin zwingle bullinger gotter archbishop whitgift president prideaux whitaker folk poole hutcheson charnock gill cartwright grotius coxius gamarus piscator rivetus chamier witsius maastricht turton lamp burkett a clark and according to lamp whitcliffe danielle and Piraeus. i do not assert this on second-hand information i have verified the assertion by examining with my own eyes the works of all the authors above named excepting the three referred to by lamp on the precise meaning of the word water they are not agreed but they all hold that our lord did not mean baptism when he spoke of being born of water and the spirit dean alford i observe says that the expression refers to the token or outward sign of baptism on any honest interpretation how far it is justifiable to use such language about an opinion supported by so many great names i leave to the reader to decide those who wish to see the view of the text which i advocate more fully defended will find what they want in lamp's dissertations and chamier's penstratia in adhering to a view of this text which is adopted by so few commentators i feel a natural desire to give the reasons of my opinion at full length and i think that the importance of the subject in the present day justifies me in doing so in giving these reasons i must decline entering into questions which are not directly before me the value of the sacrament of baptism the right of infants baptism the true meaning of the church of england baptismal service are matters which i shall not touch the meaning of our lord's words except a man be born of water and of the spirit is the only point to which i shall confide myself i believe that in using these words our lord did not refer to baptism and i think so for the following reasons a firstly there is nothing in the words of the text which necessarily requires to be referred to baptism water washing and cleansing are figurative expressions frequently used in scripture in order to denote a spiritual operation on man's heart see psalm fifty one verses seven to ten isaiah chapter forty four verse three jeremiah chapter four verse fourteen ezekiel chapter thirty six verse twenty five john chapter four verse ten chapter seven verses thirty eight and thirty nine the expression born of water and of the spirit is doubtless very peculiar 
but it is not more peculiar than the parallel expression he shall baptize you with the holy ghost and with fire matthew chapter three verse ten to explain this last text by the tongues of fire on the day of pentecost is an utterly unsatisfactory interpretation and confines the fulfilment of a mighty general promise to one single act and one single day i believe that in each case an element is mentioned in connection with the spirit in order to show the nature of the spirit's operation men must be baptized with the holy ghost purifying their hearts from corruption as fire purifies metal and must be born of the spirit cleansing their hearts as water cleanses the body the use of fire and water as the great instrument of purification was well known to the jews see numbers chapter thirty one verse twenty three where both are mentioned together chrysostom well remarks that scripture sometimes connects the grace of the spirit with fire and sometimes with water b secondly the assertion that water must mean baptism because baptism is the ordinary means of regeneration is an assertion utterly destitute of scriptural proof it is no doubt written of professing saints and believers that they have been buried with christ in baptism and that as many as have been baptized into christ have put on christ romans chapter six verse four galatians chapter three verse twenty seven but there is not a single text which declares that baptism is the only way by which people are born again on the contrary we find two plain texts in which regeneration is distinctly ascribed not to baptism but to the word first peter chapter one verse twenty three james chapter one verse eighteen moreover the case of simon magus clearly proves that in apostolic times all persons did not receive grace when they were baptized st peter tells him a very few days after his baptism thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity thy heart is not right in the sight of god thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter acts chapter eight verses twenty one to twenty three the assertion therefore that water must mean baptism is a mere gratuitous assumption and must fall to the ground c thirdly if water in the text before us means baptism it follows as a logical consequence that baptism is absolutely necessary to salvation and that all who have died unbaptized since these words were spoken have been lost the penitent thief was lost on this theory for he was never baptized all infants who have died unbaptized have been lost the whole body of the quakers who die in their own communion are lost there is no evading this conclusion unless we adopt the absurd and untenable hypothesis that the kingdom of god in this solemn passage means nothing more than the visible church where our lord in declaring a great general truth makes no exceptions we have no right to make them if words mean anything to refer water to baptism excludes unbaptized persons from heaven and yet there is not another instance in scripture of an outward ordinance being made absolutely necessary to salvation and specially an ordinance which a man cannot confer on himself a new regenerate heart is undoubtedly necessary to the salvation of every one without exception and it is of this only i believe that the text before us speaks d fourthly if we accept the theory that baptism is the ordinary means of conveying the grace of regeneration that all baptized persons are necessarily regenerated and that all who are born of water are at the same time born of the spirit we are irresistibly involved in the most dangerous and pernicious consequences we pour contempt on the whole work of the spirit and on the blessed doctrine of regeneration 
we bring into the church a new and unscriptural kind of new birth a new birth that cannot be seen by its fruits we make out that people are born of god when they have not one of the marks of regeneration laid down by st john we encourage the rankest antinomianism we lead people to suppose that they have grace in their hearts while they are servants of sin and that they have the holy spirit within them while they are obeying the lusts of the flesh last but not least we pour contempt on the holy sacrament of baptism we turn it into a mere form in which faith and prayer have no place at all we lead people to suppose that it matters nothing in what spirit they bring their children to baptism and that if water is sprinkled and certain words are used an infant is as a matter of course born again worst of all we induce people secretly to despise baptism because we teach them that it always conveys a mighty spiritual blessing while their own eyes tell them that in a multitude of cases it does no good at all i see no possibility of avoiding these consequences however little some persons who hold the inseparability of baptism and regeneration may intend them happily i have the comfort of thinking that there is an utter want of logic in some hearts which have much grace e fifthly if born of water and the spirit was meant to teach nicodemus that baptism is the ordinary means of conveying spiritual regeneration it is very difficult to understand why our lord rebuked him for not knowing it knowest thou not these things how could he know them that there was such a thing as baptism he knew as a pharisee but that baptism was the appointed means of conveying new birth he could not know it was a doctrine nowhere taught in the old testament it is a doctrine on the showing of its own advocates peculiar to christianity and yet nicodemus is rebuked for not knowing it to my mind this is inexplicable the necessity of a thorough change of heart on the contrary nicodemus might have known from the old testament scriptures and it was for ignorance of this not for ignorance of baptismal regeneration that he was rebuked f sixthly and lastly if it be true that to be born of water means baptism and that baptism is the ordinary means of conveying the grace of regeneration it is most extraordinary that there is so little about baptism in the epistles of the new testament in romans it is only twice mentioned and in first corinthians seven times in galatians ephesians colossians hebrews and the first peter we find it named once in each epistle in thirteen of the remaining epistles it is neither named nor referred to in the two pastoral epistles to timothy where we might expect something about baptism if anywhere there is not a word about it in the epistle to titus the only text that can possibly be applied to baptism is by no means clearly applicable titus chapter three verse five nor is this all in the one epistle which mentions baptism seven times we find the writer saying that christ sent him not to baptize but to preach the gospel and actually thanking god that he had baptized none of the corinthians save crispus and gaius first corinthians chapter one verses fourteen and seventeen he would surely never have said this if all whom he baptized were at once born again imagine st paul saying i thank god i regenerated none of you moreover it is a startling fact that this very same apostle in the very same epistle says to the same corinthians i have begotten you through the gospel first corinthians chapter four verse fourteen my deliberate conviction is that st paul would never have written these sentences 
if he had believed that the only way to be born of the Spirit was to be baptized. I give these reasons with a sorrowful feeling that to many they are given in vain, but I have felt it due to myself in maintaining an opinion about a most important text which is not commonly held, to state fully my reasons and to show that my opinion is not lightly maintained. Before leaving this subject, I think it right in self-defense to say something about the fact that the view I maintain is not held by the great majority of commentators. This fact undoubtedly calls for some explanation. With regard to the fathers, no one can read their writings without seeing that they were fallible men. On no point does their weakness appear so strongly as in their language about the sacraments. The man who intends to abide by all the opinions of the fathers about the sacraments will have to swallow a great deal. After all, the very earliest father, whose commentary on St. John's Gospel is extant, is Origen, who died in 253 A.D. The true view of the text before us might easily be lost in the period of at least 150 years between Origen's day and the days of St. John. Tertullian incidentally applies the text before us to baptism in one of his writings, but even he was not born till 160 A.D., at least two generations after St. John's time. With regard to the Lutheran writers, their avowed opinions upon the sacraments make their interpretations of the text before us of little weight. They have a peculiar sacramental theory to maintain when they expound scripture, and to that theory they steadfastly adhere. Yet even Brentius on this text confesses that the baptism here signified by water means something much more than the sacrament of baptism, and includes the whole doctrine of the gospel. The Roman Catholic commentators are, of course, even more fettered in their views of the sacraments than the Lutherans, and hardly call for any remark. Their constant endeavor in expounding scripture is to maintain the sacramental system of their own church, and a text like that before us is unhesitatingly applied to baptism. With regard to our own English reformers and their immediate successors, their opinions about a text like this are perhaps less valuable than upon any subject. They always display an excessive anxiety to agree with the fathers. They were anxious in every way to conciliate opponents and to support their own Protestantism by appeals to primitive antiquity. When, therefore, they saw that the fathers referred the text before us to baptism, and that at best the point was doubtful, we cannot wonder that they held that to be born of water was to be baptized. Yet even they seemed not unanimous on the point, and Latimer's well-known assertion that to be christened with water is not regeneration must not be forgotten. The famous remarks of Hooker, which are so frequently thrown in the teeth of those who take the view of water and the spirit, which I do, are a curious instance of the coolness with which a great man can sometimes draw an illogical conclusion in his own favor from some broad general premise. He lays down the general principle that when a literal construction of a text will stand, that furthest from the letter is commonly the worst. He then proceeds to take it for granted that to interpret born of water, of baptism, is the literal construction of the text now before us. Unfortunately, this is precisely the point that I, for one, do not concede, and his conclusion is consequently, to my mind, worthless. Moreover, when we talk of a literal sense, there must evidently be some limit to it. If not, we cannot answer the Roman Catholic when he proves transubstantiation by the words, This is my body. 
I believe that for a true and sound exposition of the text before us, we must look to the Puritans and Dutch divines of the seventeenth century. It was necessary for men to be a generation further off from Romanism before they were able to give a dispassionate opinion about such a text as this. The early Protestants did not see the consequences of the language they sometimes used about baptism with sufficient clearness. Otherwise, I believe they would not have written about it as they did. To anyone who asks for a specimen of the seventeenth-century divinity, I would say that one of the simplest and best statements of the true meaning of the text before us will be found in Poole's annotations. In leaving the whole subject there is one fact which I think deserves very serious consideration. Those churches of Christendom at the present day, which distinctly maintain that all baptized persons are born of the Spirit, are, as a general rule, the most corrupt churches in the world. Those bodies of Christians, on the other hand, which deny the inseparable connection of baptism and the new birth, are precisely those bodies which are the most pure in faith and practice, and do most for the extension of the gospel in the world. This is a great fact which ought not to be forgotten verse six that which is born flesh spirit in this verse our lord gives nicodemus the reason why the change of heart called new birth is a thing of such absolute necessity and why no slight moral change will suffice nicodemus had spoken of entering a second time into his mother's womb our lord tells him that even if such a thing were possible it would not make him fit for the kingdom of god the child of human parents would always be like the parents from which it sprung, if it was born a hundred times over. That which is born of flesh is flesh. All men and women are by nature corrupt, sinful, fleshly, and alienated from God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans chapter 8, verse 8. Their children will always be born with a nature like that of their parents. To bring a clean thing out of an unclean is proverbially impossible. A bramble will never bear grapes, however much it may be cultivated, and a natural man will never be a godly man without the spirit. In order to be really spiritual, and fit for the kingdom of God, a new power from without must enter into a man's nature. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. The sentence is undoubtedly very elliptical, and expressed in abstract terms. It is like St. Paul's words, the carnal mind is enmity against God. Romans chapter 8 verse 7. But the general meaning is unmistakable. Human nature is so utterly fallen, corrupt, and carnal, that nothing can come from it by natural generation, but a fallen, corrupt, and carnal offspring. There is no self-curative power in man. He will always go on reproducing himself. To become spiritual and fit for communion with God, nothing less is required than the entrance of the Spirit of God into our hearts. In one word, we must have that new birth of the Spirit which our Lord twice described to Nicodemus. The word flesh, I am inclined to think, with pool and dyke, is taken in two senses in this verse. In the first case, it means the natural body of man, as in John chapter 1, verse 14. In the second case, it means the corrupt carnal nature of man, as in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. The same remark applies to the word spirit. In the first instance, it means the Holy Spirit, and in the second, the spiritual nature which the Spirit produces. The offspring of all children of Adam is fleshly. The offspring of the Spirit is spiritual. Neither the grace, nor rank, nor money, nor learning of parents, 
will prevent a child from having a corrupt heart, if it is naturally born of the flesh. Nothing will make anyone spiritual but being born again of the Spirit. It must be carefully remembered, in considering this verse, that it cannot be applied to the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he had a true body like our own, he was not born of the flesh, as we are, by natural generations, but conceived by the miraculous operation of the Holy Ghost. Verse 7. Marvel not, must be born again. In reading this verse, the stress ought to be laid on the last two words, born again. It is evident that the thing which stumbled Nicodemus was the idea of a new birth at all being necessary. He felt unable to understand what this new birth was. Our Lord forbids him to marvel, and proceeds to explain the new birth by a familiar illustration. It is a noteworthy and striking fact that no doctrine has excited such surprise in every age of the church, and has called forth so much opposition from the great and learned as this very doctrine of the new birth. The men of the present day who sneer at conversions and revivals as fanaticism and enthusiasm are no wise better than Nicodemus. Like him, they expose their own ignorance to the work of the Holy Ghost. Verse 8. The wind bloweth, etc. The object of this verse appears to be to explain the work of the Holy Ghost in the regeneration of man by a familiar illustration drawn from the wind. Mysterious as the Spirit's work was, Nicodemus must allow that there was much mystery about the wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth. We cannot account for the direction in which it blows, or for the beginning or extent of its influence. But when we hear the sound of the wind, we do not for a moment question that it is blowing. Our Lord tells Nicodemus that it is just the same with the operations of the Spirit. There is doubtless much about them that is mysterious and incomprehensible. But when we see fruit brought forth, in a manifest change of heart and life, we have no right to question the reality of the Spirit's operations. The last clause of the verse is undeniably somewhat difficult. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. We should rather have expected, so does the Spirit operate on every one that is born again. And this was, no doubt, our Lord's meaning. Yet the form of speech which our Lord uses is not altogether without parallel in the New Testament. For instance, we read, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. The likeness in this case is clearly not between the man and the kingdom. The meaning is that the whole story is an illustration of the kingdom of heaven. So also we read that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchantman seeking goodly pearls, and might make a similar remark. Matthew chapter 13 verse 45. The Greek word translated wind at the beginning of this verse might be rendered with equal correctness the spirit. Many think as Origen, Augustine, Rupertus, Bengal, Schottgen, Ambrose, Jansenius, Wycliffe's version, Busser, and Bede, that it ought to be so rendered. They deny that our Lord brought in the idea of the wind at all. They object to it being said of the wind that it listeth, and say that the expression cannot be applied to any but a person. This notion seems to me, as it does to the great majority of commentators, entirely untenable. For one thing, it creates great awkwardness to make comparison between the Spirit and the work of the Spirit which we must do if this theory is correct. The Spirit bloweth, and so is every one born of the Spirit. For another thing, 
it seems to me very strange to speak of the holy ghost as blowing and to speak of the sound of the holy ghost or of that sound being heard by nicodemus i can see no difficulty whatever in the expression the wind bloweth where it listeth it is common in the bible to personify unintelligent things and to speak of them as having mind and will thus our lord speaks of the stones crying out luke chapter 19 verse 40 and the psalmist says the sun knoweth his going down psalm 104 verse 19 see also job chapter 37 verses 8 and 35 in addition to this i see a peculiar beauty in the selection of the wind as an illustration of the work of the spirit not only is the illustration most apt and striking but it is one which is used in other places in scripture see for instance in the vision of the dry bones how ezekiel cries to the wind to breathe on the slain ezekiel chapter thirty seven verse nine see also canticles chapter four verse sixteen and acts chapter two verse two last but not least it seems to me that nicodemus's state of perplexity makes it highly probable that our lord would graciously help his ignorance by the use of a familiar illustration like that of the wind if no illustration at all was used in this verse it is not quite easy to see how its language would help nicodemus to understand the doctrine of the new birth but if the verse contains a familiar illustration the whole purpose of our lord in saying what he did becomes clear and plain End of section 11section twelve of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter three verses nine to twenty one spiritual ignorance god's love the source of salvation christ's death the means of providing salvation faith the instrument which makes salvation ours john chapter three verses nine to twenty one Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that which we do know, and testify that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, 
that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We have in these verses the second part of the conversation between our Lord Jesus and Nicodemus. A lesson about regeneration is closely followed by a lesson about justification. The whole passage ought always to be read with affectionate reverence. It contains words which have brought eternal life to myriads of souls. These verses show us, firstly, what gross spiritual ignorance there may be in the mind of great and learned man. We see a master of Israel, unacquainted with the first elements of saving religion. Nicodemus is told about the new birth, and at once exclaims, How can these things be? When such was the darkness of a Jewish teacher, what must have been the state of the Jewish people? It was indeed due time for Christ to appear. The pastors of Israel had ceased to feed the people with knowledge. The blind were leading the blind, and both were falling into the ditch. Matthew chapter 15, verse 14. Ignorance like that of Nicodemus is unhappily far too common in the Church of Christ. We must never be surprised if we find it in quarters where we might reasonably expect knowledge. Learning and rank and high ecclesiastical office are no proof that a minister is taught by the Spirit. The successors of Nicodemus, in every age, are far more numerous than the successors of St. Peter. On no point is religious ignorance so common as on the work of the Holy Ghost. That old stumbling-block, at which Nicodemus stumbled, is as much an offence to thousands in the present day as it was in the days of Christ. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Happy is he who has been taught to prove all things by Scripture, and to call no man master upon earth. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew chapter 23, verse 9. These verses show us, secondly, the original source from which man's salvation springs. That source is the love of God the Father. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This wonderful verse has been justly called by Luther, the Bible in miniature, no part of it, perhaps, is so deeply important as the first five words, God so loved the world. The love here spoken of is not that special love with which the Father regards his own elect, but that mighty pity and compassion with which he regards the whole race of mankind. Its object is not merely the little flock which he has given to Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners, without any exception, there is a deep sense in which God loves the world. All whom he has created he regards with pity and compassion. Their sins he cannot love, but he loves their souls. His tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. Christ is God's gracious gift to the whole world. Let us take heed that our views of the love of God are scriptural and well-defined, the subject is one on which error abounds on either side. On the one hand, we must beware of vague and exaggerated opinions. We must maintain firmly that God hates wickedness, and that the end of all who persist in wickedness will be destruction. It is not true that God's love is lower than hell. It is not true that God so loved the world that all mankind will be finally saved, but that he so loved the world that he gave his Son to be the Saviour of all who believe. 
His love is offered to all men freely, fully, honestly, and unreservedly, but it is only through the one channel of Christ's redemption. He that rejects Christ cuts himself off from God's love and will perish everlastingly. On the other hand, we must beware of narrow and contracted opinions. We must not hesitate to tell any sinner that God loves him. It is not true that God cares for none but his own elect, or that Christ is not offered to any but those who are ordained to eternal life. There is a kindness and love in God towards all mankind. It was in consequence of that love that Christ came into the world and died upon the cross. Let us not be wise above that which is written, or more systematic in our statements than Scripture itself. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not willing that any should perish. God would have all men trust to be saved. God loves the world. John chapter 6 verse 32, Titus chapter 3 verse 4, 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11. These verses show us, thirdly, the peculiar plan by which the love of God has provided salvation for sinners. That plan is the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Our Lord says to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. By being lifted up, our Lord meant nothing less than his own death upon the cross. That death, he would have us know, was appointed by God to be the life of the world, John chapter 6, verse 51. It was ordained from all eternity to be the great propitiation and satisfaction for man's sin. It was the payment, by an almighty substitute and representative, of man's enormous debt to God. When Christ died upon the cross, our many sins were laid upon him. He was made sin for us. He was made a curse for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. By his death, he purchased pardon and complete redemption for sinners. The brazen spirit, lifted up in the camp of Israel, brought health and cure within the reach of all who were bitten by serpents. Christ crucified, in like manner, brought eternal life within reach of lost mankind. Christ has been lifted up on the cross and man looking to him by faith may be saved. The truth before us is the very foundation stone of the Christian religion. Christ's death is the Christian's life. Christ's cross is the Christian's title to heaven. Christ lifted up and put to shame on Calvary is the ladder by which Christians enter into the holiest and are at length landed in glory. It is true that we are sinners, but Christ has suffered for us. It is true that we deserve death, but Christ has died for us. It is true that we are guilty debtors, but Christ has paid our debts with his own blood. This is the real gospel. On this let us lean while we live. To this let us cling when we die. Christ has been lifted up on the cross and has thrown open the gates of heaven to all believers. These verses show us, fourthly, the way in which the benefits of Christ's death are made our own. That way is simply to put faith and trust in Christ. Faith is the same thing as believing. Three times our Lord repeats this glorious truth to Nicodemus. Twice he proclaims that, Whosoever believeth shall not perish. 
once he says he that believeth on the son of god is not condemned faith in the lord jesus is the very key of salvation he that has it has life and he that has it not has not life nothing whatever beside this faith is necessary to our complete justification but nothing whatever except this faith will give us an interest in christ we may fast and mourn for sin and do many things that are right and use religious ordinances and give all our goods to feed the poor and yet remain unpardoned and lose our souls but if we will only come to christ as guilty sinners and believe on him our sins shall at once be forgiven and our iniquities shall be entirely put away without faith there is no salvation but through faith in jesus the vilest sinner may be saved if we would have a peaceful conscience in our religion let us see that our views of saving faith are distinct and clear let us beware of supposing that justifying faith is anything more than a sinner's simple trust in a saviour the grasp of a drowning man on the hand held out for his relief let us beware of mingling anything else with faith in the manner of justification here we must always remember faith stands entirely alone a justified man no doubt will always be a holy man true believing will always be accompanied by godly living but that which gives a man an interest in christ is not his living but his faith if we would know whether our faith is genuine we do well to ask ourselves how we are living but if we would know whether we are justified by christ there is but one question to be asked that question is do we believe these verses show us lastly the true cause of the loss of man's soul our lord says to nicodemus this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil the words before us form a suitable conclusion to the glorious tidings which we have just been considering they completely clear god of injustice in the condemnation of sinners they show in simple and unmistakable terms that although man's salvation is entirely of god his ruin if he is lost will be entirely from himself he will reap the fruit of his own sowing the doctrine here laid down ought to be carefully remembered it supplies an answer to a common cavil of the enemies of god's truth there is no decreed reprobation excluding anyone from heaven god sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved there is no unwillingness on god's part to receive any sinner however great his sins god has sent light into the world and if man will not come to the light the fault is entirely on man's side his blood will be on his own head if he makes shipwreck of his soul the blame will be at his own door if he misses heaven his eternal misery will be the result of his own choice his destruction will be the work of his own hand god loved him and was willing to save him but he loved darkness and therefore darkness must be his everlasting portion he would not come to christ and therefore he could not have life john chapter five verse forty the truths we have been considering are peculiarly weighty and solemn do we live as if we believed them salvation by christ's death is closed to us to-day have we embraced it by faith and made it our own let us never rest till we know christ as our own saviour let us look to him without delay for pardon and peace if we have never looked before 
let us go on believing on him if we have already believed whosoever is his own gracious word whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have eternal life notes john chapter 3 verses 9 to 21 part 1 verse 9 nicodemus answered how these things be this is the third and last time that nicodemus speaks during his visit to christ so far as it is reported to us his question here is a striking and instructive instance of the deep spiritual ignorance which may be found in the mind of a learned man four different ways our lord has brought before him one and the same lesson first he had laid down the great principle that every man must be born again secondly he had repeated the same thing in fuller words and brought in the idea of water to illustrate the work of the spirit thirdly he had shown the necessity of the new birth from the natural corruption of man fourthly he had illustrated the work of the spirit a second time by the instance of the wind and yet now after all that our lord has said this learned pharisee seems utterly in the dark and asks the pitiable question how can these things be we have no right to be surprised at the vast ignorance of saving religion which we see on all sides when we consider the history of nicodemus we should make up our minds to expect to find spiritual darkness the rule and spiritual light the exception few things in the long run give so much trouble to ministers missionaries teachers and district visitors as beginning work with extravagant and unscriptural expectations verse ten jesus answered and said it will be observed that our lord does not answer the question of nicodemus directly but rebukes him sharply for his ignorance yet it ought to be carefully noted as melanchthon remarks that before he concludes what he now begins to say he supplies a complete answer to his inquirer he shows him the true root and spring of regeneration namely faith in himself he answers his groping inquiry how can these things be by showing him the first step in saving religion viz to believe in the son of god let nicodemus begin like a little child by simply believing on him who was to be lifted up on the cross and he would soon understand how a man could be born again even in his old age art thou a master of israel the english version of this question hardly gives the full force of the original it should be literally rendered art thou the master of israel i e art thou the famous teacher and instructor of the jews dost thou profess to be a light of them that sit in darkness and an instructor of others the expression certainly seems to indicate that nicodemus was a man of established reputation as a teacher among the pharisees when the teachers were so ignorant what must have been the state of the taught knowest not these things these words unquestionably imply rebuke the things which our lord had just mentioned nicodemus ought to have known and understood he professed to be a religious teacher he professed to know the old testament scriptures the doctrine therefore of the necessity of a new birth ought not to have appeared strange to him a clean heart circumcision of the heart a new heart a heart of stone instead of a heart of flesh were expressions and ideas which he must have read in the prophets and which all pointed toward the new birth psalm fifty one verse ten jeremiah chapter four verse four ezekiel chapter eighteen verse thirty one chapter thirty six verse twenty six his ignorance consequently was deserving of blame 
the verse before us appears to me to supply a strong argument against the idea that the expression born of water and the spirit means baptism i do not see how nicodemus could possibly have known this doctrine as it is nowhere revealed in the old testament and even its own advocates confine it to new testament times to blame a man for not knowing things which he could not possibly know would be obviously most unjust and entirely at variance with the general tenor of our lord's dealings verse eleven we speak that we do know etc whom does our lord mean here when he says we the answers to this question are various a some think as luther brentius bucer gauter aretius hutcheson musculus gomarus piscator and cartwright that we means i and john the baptist b some think as calvin beza and scott that it means i and the old testament prophets c some think as alcuin according to maldonatus and wesley that it means i and all who are born of the spirit d some think as chrysostom cyril rupertus colovius glacius chemnitius lamp lay nephalnius cornelius alapide crocius steer and bengal that it means either i and the father or i and the holy ghost or i and both the father and the spirit e some think as theophylact swingle pool and doddridge that our lord only means himself when he says we and that he uses the plural number in order to give weight and dignity to what he says as kings do so also he says whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of god or with what comparison shall we compare it mark chapter four verse thirty we in that text evidently stands for i in st john's first epistle the first person plural is used instead of the singular repeatedly in the first five verses of the first chapter the last of these five opinions appears to me by far the most probable and satisfactory the first three seem to me to be entirely overthrown by john the baptist's words in this chapter verse thirty two where he mentions it as a peculiar mark of our lord's superiority to all other teachers that he testifieth what he hath seen and heard the fourth opinion appears to me untenable the fear of socinianism must not make us wrestle texts in order to apply them to the trinity there is a fitness in our lord's saying during his earthly ministry after his incarnation i speak and testify what i have known and seen from all eternity with my father but there is no apparent fitness in saying that he and the other two persons in the trinity speak what they have seen the meaning of the sentence appears to be this i declare with authority and bear witness to truths which from all eternity i have known and seen as god in union with the father and the holy ghost i do not speak as all merely human ministers must what i have been taught by others i do not testify things which i have received as god's servant as ordinary prophets have and which i should not have known without god's inspiration i testify what i have seen with my father and knew before the world began it is like the expression i speak that which i have seen with my father john chapter eight verse thirty eight melanchthon thinks that our lord in this verse contrasts the uncertain traditions and human inventions which the pharisees taught with the sure certain and irrefragable truths of god which he came to preach Busser remarks that the verse contains a practical lesson for all religious teachers 
no man has a right to teach unless he is thoroughly persuaded of the truth of which he teaches ye receive not our witness this sentence corresponds so exactly with john the baptist's words at verse thirty two that it confirms me in the opinion that our lord in this verse only speaks of himself the words before us as well as those of john the baptist must be taken with some qualification the greater part of you receive not our testimony the object of the verse is to rebuke the unbelief of nicodemus and all who were like-minded with him among the jews the use of the plural number ye makes it probable that our lord in this verse refers not merely to what he had just been saying to nicodemus but to all his public teaching at jerusalem from the time of his casting out the buyers and sellers in the temple if we do not adopt this theory we must suppose him to mean what i have spoken and testified to you about regeneration is what i continually say to all who come like you to inquire of me and yet neither you nor they believe what i say you all alike stumble at this stumbling-stone the new birth calvin remarks on this expression that we ought never to be surprised at unbelief if men would not receive christ's testimony it is no wonder that they will not receive ours verse twelve if i have told earthly heavenly things to see the full force of this verse we should paraphrase it thus if ye do not believe what i say when i tell you as i have done things that are earthly how will you believe if i go on as i shall do to tell you of things that are heavenly if you will not believe when ye hear my first lesson what will ye do when ye hear my second if ye are stumbled at the very alphabet of my gospel what will ye do when i proceed to show you higher and deeper truths the difficulty of the verse lies in the two expressions earthly things and heavenly things our lord does not explain them and we are therefore left to conjecture their true meaning i offer the following explanation with some diffidence as the most satisfactory one by earthly things i believe our lord means the doctrine of the new birth which he had just been expounding to nicodemus by heavenly things i believe he means the great and solemn truths which he was about immediately to declare and which he does declare in rapid succession from this verse down to the end of the conversation these truths were his own divinity the plan of redemption by his own death on the cross the love of god to the whole world and his consequent provision of salvation faith in the son of god as the only way to escape hell and man's willful rejection of light the only cause of man's condemnation but why does our lord call the new birth an earthly thing i reply that he does so because it is an earthly thing compared with his own divinity and atonement regeneration is a thing that takes place in man here upon earth the atonement is a transaction that was done for man and of which the special effect is on man's position before god in heaven in regeneration god comes down to man and dwells in him upon earth in the atonement christ takes up man's nature as man's representative and as man's forerunner goes up into heaven regeneration is a change of which even the men of this world have some faint inkling and which can be illustrated by such earthly figures as water and wind almost every one allows as Bucer remarks that he is not so good as he should be and that he needs some change to fit him for heaven christ's divinity and the incarnation and the atonement and justification by faith are such high and heavenly things that man has no natural conception of them regeneration is so far an earthly idea 
that even irreligious men borrow the word and talk of regenerating nations and society salvation by faith in christ's blood is so entirely a heavenly thing that it is constantly misunderstood hated and sneered at by unconverted men when therefore our lord calls the new birth an earthly thing we must understand that he does so comparatively in itself the new birth is a high holy and heavenly thing but compared with the doctrine of the incarnation and atonement it is an earthly thing verse thirteen and no man hath ascended etc this verse according to my view contains the first heavenly thing which our lord displays to nicodemus but the sentence is undeniably a difficult one and commentators differ widely as to its meaning something as calvin musculus bullinger hutcheson poole quesnell schottgen dyke lightfoot lee doddridge a clark and steer that our lord here shows to nicodemus in highly figurative language the necessity of divine teaching in order to understand spiritual truth no child of adam has ever reached the lofty mysteries of heaven and made himself acquainted with its high and holy truths by his own natural understanding such knowledge is only possessed by the incarnate saviour the son of man who has come down from heaven if you would know spiritual truth you must sit at his feet and learn of him this view of the text is supported by proverbs chapter thirty verse thirty four according to this view the verse must be taken in close connection with the preceding one where the ignorance of nicodemus is exposed some think as wingle melanchthon brentius aretius flacius and ferris that our lord here shows to nicodemus and again in highly figurative language the impossibility of human merit and the utter inability of man justifying himself and obtaining an entrance into heaven by his own righteousness no one can possibly ascend into god's presence in heaven and stand perfect and complete before him except the incarnate saviour who has come down from heaven to fulfil all righteousness i am the way to heaven if you would enter heaven you must believe on the son of man and become a member of his body by faith this view of the text appeals for support to romans chapter ten verses six to nine according to this view the verse must be taken in close connection with the following verse in which the way of justification is explained the true view of the text i venture to think is as follows the words of the text are to be taken literally our lord begins his list of heavenly things by declaring to nicodemus his own divine nature and dignity he reminds him that no one has ever ascended literally into heaven where god dwells enoch and elijah and david for instance were doubtless in a place of bliss when they left this world but they had not ascended into heaven acts chapter two verse thirty four but that which no man not even the holiest saint has attained was the right and prerogative of him in whose company nicodemus was the son of man had dwelt from all eternity in heaven had come down from heaven would one day ascend again into heaven and in his divine nature was actually in heaven one with god the father at that very moment know who it is to whom you are speaking i am not merely a teacher come from god as you say i am the messiah the son of man foretold by daniel i have come down from heaven according to promise to save sinners i shall one day ascend again into heaven as the victorious forerunner of a saved people above all i am as god in heaven at this moment i am he who fills heaven and earth 
i prefer this view of the verse to any other for two reasons for one thing it gives a literal meaning to every word in the text for another it seems a fitting answer to the first idea which nicodemus had put forward in the conversation viz that our lord was only a teacher come from god it is the view which is in the main held by rollock colovius and gomarus and expounded by them with much ability the greek word which we render but i am inclined to think ought to be taken in an adversative rather than an acceptive sense instances of this usage will be found in matthew chapter twelve verse four mark chapter thirteen verse thirty two luke chapter four verses twenty six and twenty seven john chapter seventeen verse twelve revelation chapter nine verse four chapter twenty one verse twenty seven the thought appears to be man has not and cannot ascend into heaven but that which man cannot do i the son of man can do heaven throughout this verse must be taken in the sense of that immediate and peculiar presence of god which we can conceive of and express in no other form than by the word heaven the expression which is in heaven deserves particular notice it is one of those many expressions in the new testament which can be explained in no other way than by the doctrine of christ's divinity it would be utterly absurd and untrue to say of any mere man that at the very time he was speaking to another on earth he was in heaven but it can be said of christ with perfect truth and propriety he never ceased to be very god when he became incarnate he was with god and was god as god he was in heaven while he was speaking to nicodemus the expression is one which no socinian can explain away if christ was only a very holy man and nothing more he could not have used these words the socinian explanation for the former part of the verse viz that christ was caught up into heaven after his baptism and there instructed about the gospel he was to teach would be of itself utterly absurd and a mere theory invented to get over a difficulty but the conclusion of the verse is a blow at the very root of the socinian system it is written not only that christ came down from heaven but that he is in heaven it admits of a question whether the greek words we translate which is do not both here and in chapter one verse eighteen point to that peculiar name of jehovah which was doubtless familiar to nicodemus the ever-existing one the living one it is the same phrase which forms part of christ's name in revelation him which is revelation chapter one verse four much of the difficulty of the verse is removed by remembering that the past tense hath ascended admits of being rendered with equal grammatical correctness does ascend can ascend or will ascend pierce takes this view and quotes in support of it john chapter one verse twenty six chapter three verse eighteen chapter five verse twenty four chapter six verse sixty nine chapter eleven verse twenty seven chapter twenty verse twenty nine whitby thinks that throughout this verse our lord has in view a rabbinical tradition that moses had been into heaven to receive the law and that he declares the falsehood of this tradition by saying no man not even moses has ascended into heaven verse fourteen as moses lifted serpent so must etc etc in this verse our lord proceeds to show nicodemus another heavenly thing viz the necessity of his own crucifixion nicodemus probably thought like most jews that when messiah appeared he would come with power and glory 
to be exalted and honored by men jesus tells him that so far from this being the case messiah must be cut off at his first advent and put to an open shame by being hanged on a tree he illustrates this by a well-known event in the history of israel's wanderings the story of the brazen serpent numbers chapter twenty one verse nine are you expecting me to take to myself power and to restore the kingdom of israel cast away such a vain expectation i have come to do very different work i have come to suffer and to offer up myself as a sacrifice for sin the mention of moses of whom the pharisees thought so much was eminently calculated to arrest the attention of nicodemus even moses in whom ye trust has supplied a most vivid type of my great work on earth the crucifixion the son of man must be lifted up the expression son of man was doubtless intended to remind nicodemus of daniel's prophecy of the messiah the greek word rendered must signifies it behoveth that it is necessary that it is necessary in order that god's promises of a redeemer may be fulfilled the types of the old testament sacrifice may be accomplished the law of god be satisfied and a way for god's mercy be provided in order to all this messiah must suffer in our stead the phrase lifted up appears to me most decidedly to mean lifted up on the cross for one thing we find it so explained in this gospel john chapter twelve verses thirty two and thirty three for another the illustration of the brazen serpent makes it absolutely necessary to explain it so to apply the phrase as calvin and others do to the necessity of lifting up and exalting christ's atonement in christian teaching seems to me a mistake it is needlessly dragging in an idea which the words were not intended to convey it is truth no doubt and truth abundantly taught in scripture but not the truth of this text the main points of resemblance in the comparison as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness form a subject which requires careful handling the lifting up of the serpent of brass for the relief of israel when bitten by the serpents is evidently selected by our lord as an apt illustration of his own crucifixion for sinners but how far may we press this illustration where are we to stop what are the exact points at which the type and antitype meet these questions require consideration some see a meaning in the brass of which the serpent was made as a shining metal a strong metal etc etc i cannot see it our lord does not even mention the brass some see in the serpent hanging on the pole a type of the devil the old serpent bruised by christ's death on the cross and openly triumphed over on it colossians chapter two verse fifteen i cannot see this at all it appears to me to confound and mingle up two scriptural truths which ought to be kept distinct moreover there is something revolting in the idea that in order to be healed the israelite had to look at a figure of the devil some see in moses lifting up the serpent a type of the law of god requiring payment of its demands and becoming the cause of christ dying on the cross on this i will content myself with saying that i am not satisfied that this idea was in christ's mind the points of resemblance appear to me to be these a as the israelites were in sore distress and dying from the bites of poisonous serpents so is man in great spiritual danger and dying from the poisonous effects of sin b 
as the serpent of brass was lifted up on a pole in the sight of the camp of israel so christ was to be lifted up on the cross publicly and in the sight of the whole nation at the passover c as the serpent lifted up on the pole was an image of the very thing which had poisoned the israelites even so christ had in himself no sin and yet was made and crucified in the likeness of sinful flesh and counted sin romans chapter eight verse three the brazen serpent was a serpent without poison and christ was a man without sin the thing which we should specially see in christ crucified is our sin laid upon him and him counted as a sinner and treated as a sinner and punished as a sinner for our redemption in fact we see on the cross our sins punished crucified born and carried by our redeemer d finally as the one way by which israelites obtained relief from the brazen serpent was by looking at it so the one way to get benefit from christ is to look at him by faith the feeblest look brought cure to an israelite and the weakest faith if true and sincere brings salvation to sinners it should be carefully noted that it seems impossible to reconcile this verse with that modern divinity which can see nothing in christ's death but a great act of self-sacrifice and which denies christ's substitution for us on the cross and the imputation of our sins to him such divinity withers up such a verse as this entirely and cuts out the life heart and marrow of its meaning unless words are most violently wrested from their ordinary signification the illustration before us points directly towards two great truths of the gospel one of them is that christ's death upon the cross was meant to have a medicinal health-conferring effect upon our souls and that there was something in it far above a mere martyr's example the other truth is that when christ died upon the cross he was dealt with as our substitute and representative and punished through the imputation of our sins in our place the thing that israel saw on the pole and from which they got health was an image of the very serpent that bit them the object that christians should see on the cross is a divine person made sin and a curse for them and allowing that very sin that has poisoned the world to be imputed to him and laid upon his head it is easy work to sneer at the words vicarious sacrifice and imputed merit as nowhere to be found in scripture but it is not so easy to disprove the fact that the ideas are constantly to be met with in the bible the use of the brazen serpent in this verse as an illustration of christ's death and its purpose must not be abused and made an excuse for turning every incident of the history of israel in the wilderness into an allegory it is very important not to attach an allegorical meaning to bible facts without authority such things as the manna the smitten rock and the brazen serpent are allegorized for us by the holy ghost but where the holy ghost has not pointed out an allegory we ought to be very cautious in our assertions that allegory exists bucer's remarks on this subject deserve reading verse fifteen that whosoever believeth not perish life in this verse our lord declares to nicodemus the great end and purpose for which the son of man was to be lifted up on the cross and the way in which the benefits of his crucifixion become our own in interpreting the verse we should carefully remember that the comparison of the serpent lifted up in the wilderness must be carried through to the end of the sentence the son of man must be lifted up on the cross that whosoever believeth on him or looks to him by faith 
as the Israelites looked to the brazen serpent, should not perish in hell. The expression, whosoever, deserves special notice. It might have been equally well translated, every one. It is intended to show us the width and breadth of Christ's offers of salvation. Therefore every one, without exception, that believeth. The expression, believeth in him, is deeply important. It describes that one act of man's soul which is needful to give him an interest in Jesus Christ. It is not a mere belief of the head that there is such a person as Jesus Christ, and that he is a Saviour. It is a belief of the heart and will. When a person, feeling his desperate need by reason of sin, flees to Jesus Christ, and trusts him, leans on him, and commits his soul entirely to him as his Saviour and Redeemer, he is said, in the language of the text, to believe on him. The simpler our views of faith are, the better. The more steadily we keep in view the Israelite looking at the brazen serpent, the more we shall understand the words before us. Believing is neither more nor less than heart-looking. Whosoever looked at the brazen serpent was made well, however ill he was, and however feeble his look. Just so, whosoever looks to Jesus by faith is pardoned, however great his sins may have been, and however feeble his faith. Did the Israelite look? That was the only question in the matter of being healed from the serpent's bite. Does the sinner believe? That is the only question in the matter of being justified and pardoned. Looking to Moses, or looking to the tabernacle, or looking even to the pole on which the serpent hung, or looking to anything except the brazen serpent, the bitten Israelite would not have been cured. Just so, looking to anything but Christ crucified, however holy the object looked at may be, the sinner cannot be saved. The expression, should not perish but have eternal life, is peculiarly strong. As the Israelite who looked at the brazen serpent not only did not die of his wounds but recovered complete health, so the sinner who looks to Jesus not only escapes hell and condemnation, but has a seed of eternal life at once put in his heart, receives a complete title to an eternal life of glory and blessedness in heaven, and enters into that life after death. The salvation of the gospel is exceedingly full. It is not merely being pardoned, it is being counted completely righteous and made a citizen of heaven. It is not merely an escape from hell, but the reception of a title to heaven. It has been well remarked that the Old Testament generally promised only length of days, but the gospel promises everlasting life. End of section 12section thirteen of expository thoughts on the gospel of st john volume one by j c ryle chapter three verses nine to twenty one part two notes john chapter three verses nine to twenty one part two verse sixteen for god so loved the world etc our lord in this verse shows nicodemus another heavenly thing Nicodemus probably thought, like many Jews, that God's purposes of mercy were entirely confined to his chosen people Israel, and that when Messiah appeared, he would appear only for the special benefit of the Jewish nation. Our Lord here declares to him that God loves all the world without any exception, that the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, 
is the father's gift to the whole family of adam and that every one whether jew or gentile who believes on him for salvation may have eternal life a more startling declaration to the ears of a rigid pharisee it is impossible to conceive a more wonderful verse is not to be found in the bible that god should love such a wicked world as this and not hate it that he should love it so as to provide salvation that in order to provide salvation he should give not an angel or any created being but such a priceless gift as his only begotten son that this great salvation should be freely offered to every one that believeth all all this is wonderful indeed this was indeed a heavenly thing the words god loved the world have received two very different interpretations the importance of the subject in the present day makes it desirable to state both views fully some think as hutcheson lamb and gill that the world here means god's elect out of every nation whether jews or gentiles and that the love with which god is said to love them is that eternal love with which the elect were loved before creation began and by which their calling justification preservation and final salvation are completely secured this view though supported by many and great divines does not appear to me to be our lord's meaning for one thing it seems to me a violent straining of language to confine the word world to the elect the world is undoubtedly a name sometimes given to the wicked exclusively but i cannot see that it is a name ever given to the saints for another thing to interpret the word world of the elect only is to ignore the distinction which to my eyes is plainly drawn in the text between the whole of mankind and those out of mankind who believe if the world means only the believing portion of mankind it would have been quite enough to say god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that the world should not perish but our lord does not say so he says that whosoever believeth i e that whosoever out of the world believeth lastly to confine god's love to the elect is taking a harsh and narrow view of god's character and fairly lays christianity open to the modern charges brought against it as cruel and unjust to the ungodly if god takes no thought for any but his elect and cares for none beside how shall god judge the world i believe in the electing love of god the father as strongly as any one i regard the special love with which god loves the sheep whom he has given to christ from all eternity as a most blessed and comfortable truth and one most cheering and profitable to believers i only say that it is not the truth of this text the true view of the words god loved the world i believe to be this the world means the whole race of mankind both saints and sinners without any exception the word in my opinion is so used in john chapter one verses ten and twenty nine chapter six verses thirty three and fifty one chapter eight verse twelve romans chapter three verse nineteen second corinthians chapter five verse nineteen first john chapter two verse two chapter four verse fourteen the love spoken of is that love of pity and compassion with which god regards all his creatures and specially regards mankind it is that same feeling of love which appears in psalm 145 verse 9 ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 john chapter 6 verse 32 titus chapter 3 verse 4 first john chapter 4 verse 10 second peter chapter 3 verse 9 first timothy chapter 2 verse 4 it is a love unquestionably distinct and separate from the special love with which god regards his saints 
it is a love of pity and not of approbation or complacence but it is not the less a real love it is a love which clears god of injustice in judging the world i am quite familiar with the objections commonly brought against the theory i have just propounded i find no weight in them and am not careful to answer them those who confine god's love exclusively to the elect appear to me to take a narrow and contracted view of god's character and attributes they refuse to god that attribute of compassion with which even an earthly father can regard a profligate son and can offer him pardon even though his compassion is despised and his offers refused i have long come to the conclusion that men may be more systematic in their statements than the bible and may be led into grave error by idolatrous veneration of a system the following quotation from one whom for convenience sake i must call a thorough calvinist i mean bishop devenant will show that the view which i advocate is not new the general love of god toward mankind is so clearly testified in holy scripture and so demonstrated by the manifold effects of god's goodness and mercy extended to every particular man in this world that to doubt thereof were infidelity and to deny it plain blasphemy devenant's answer to horrid page one god hateth nothing which himself created and yet it is most true that he hateth sin in any creature and hateth the creature infected with sin in such manner as hatred may be attributed to god but for all this he so generally loved mankind fallen in adam that he hath given his only begotten son that what sinner soever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and this everlasting life is so provided for man by god that no decrees of him can bring any man thither without faith and repentance and no decrees of his can keep any man out which repenteth and believeth as for the measure of god's love exhibited in the eternal effect unto man it must not be denied that god poureth out his grace more abundantly on some men than on others and worketh more powerfully and effectually in the hearts of some men than of others and that out of his alone will and pleasure but yet when this more special love is not extended his less special love is not restrained to outward and temporal mercies but reacheth to internal and spiritual blessings even such as will bring men to an eternal blessedness if their voluntary wickedness hinders not davenant's answer to horde page four sixty nine no divine of the reformed church of sound judgment will deny a general intention or appointment concerning the salvation of all men individually by the death of christ on the condition that they should believe for the intention or appointment of god is general and is plainly revealed in holy scripture although the absolute and not to be frustrated intention of god concerning the gift of faith and eternal life to some persons is special and limited to the elect alone so i have maintained and do maintain davenant's opinion on the galactian controversy calvin observes on this text christ brought life because the heavenly father loves the human race and wishes that they should not perish again he says christ employed the universal term whosoever both to invite indiscriminately all to partake of life and to cut off every excuse from unbelievers such also is the import of the term world though there is nothing in the world that is worthy of god's favor yet he shows himself to be reconciled to the whole world when he invites all men without exception to the faith of christ the same view of god's love and the world in this text is taken by brentius Bucer, 
Colovius, Glacius, Chemnitius, Musculus, Bullinger, Bengal, Nephanius, Dyke, Scott, Henry, and Manton. The little word so in this verse has called forth many remarks on account of its depth of meaning. It doubtless signifies so greatly, so much, so dearly. Bishop Sanderson, quoted by Ford, observes, How much that so containeth, no tongue or wit of man can reach. Nothing expresses it better to the life than the work itself doth. That he gave his only begotten Son. The gift of Christ, be it here noted, is the result of God's love to the world, and not the cause. To say that God loves us because Christ died for us is wretched theology indeed but to say that Christ came into the world in consequence of the love of God is a scriptural truth. The expression, He gave, is a remarkable one. Christ is God the Father's gift to a lost and sinful world. He was given generally to be the Savior, the Redeemer, the Friend of sinners, to make an atonement sufficient for all, and to provide a redemption large enough for all. To effect this, the Father freely gave Him up to be despised, rejected, mocked, crucified, and counted guilty and accursed for our sakes. It is written that he was delivered for our offences, and that God spared him not, but delivered him up for us all. Romans chapter 4 verse 25, chapter 8 verse 32. Christ is the gift of God, spoken of to the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4 verse 10, and the unspeakable gift, spoken of by St. Paul, Second Corinthians chapter 9 verse 15. He himself says to the wicked Jews, My father giveth you the true bread from heaven. John chapter 6 verse 32. This last text, be it noted, was one with which Erskine silenced the general assembly in Scotland when he was accused of offering Christ too freely to sinners. It should be observed that our Lord calls himself the only begotten Son of God in this verse. In the verse but one before this he called himself the Son of Man. Both the names were used in order to impress upon the mind of Nicodemus the two natures of Messiah. He was not only the Son of Man, but the Son of God. But it is striking to remark that precisely the same words are used in both places about faith in Christ. If we would be saved, we must believe in Him both as the Son of Man and the Son of God. That whosoever believeth, etc., life, these words are exactly the same as those in the preceding verse. Why our translators should have rendered the same Greek word by everlasting in one place and eternal in the other, it is hard to say. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, they did just the same. The repetition of this glorious saying, whosoever believeth, is very instructive. For one thing, it serves to show that mighty and broad as is the love of God, it will prove useless to everyone who does not believe in Christ. God loves all the world, but God will save none in the world who refuse to believe in His only begotten Son. For another thing, it shows us the great point to which every Christian should direct his attention. He must see to it that he believes on Christ. It is mere waste of time to be constantly asking ourselves whether God loves us and whether Christ died for us, and it argues gross ignorance of Scripture to trouble ourselves with such questions. The Bible never tells men to look at these questions but commands them to believe. Salvation, it always teaches, does not turn on the point, Did Christ die for me? But on the point, Do I believe on Christ? 
if men do not have eternal life it is never because god did not love them or because christ was not given for them but because they do not believe on christ in leaving this verse i may remark that the idea maintained by erasmus olshausen westin rosenmuller and others that it does not contain our lord's words and that from this verse down to the twenty-first we have st john's comments or observations appears to me utterly destitute of foundation and unsupported by a single argument worth noticing that our lord would not have used the third person in speaking of himself is no argument we find him frequently speaking of himself in the third person see for instance john chapter five verses nineteen and twenty nine there is literally nothing to be gained by adopting the theory while it contradicts the common belief of nearly all believers in every age of the world flacius observes that this verse and the two preceding ones comprise all the causes of justification one the remote and efficient cause god's love two the approximate efficient cause the gift of god's son three the material cause christ's exaltation on the cross four the instrumental cause faith five the final cause eternal life verse seventeen god sent not condemn world in this verse our lord chose nicodemus another heavenly thing he shows him the main object of messiah coming into the world it was not to judge men but to die for them not to condemn but to save i have a strong impression that when our lord spoke these words he had in view the prophecy of david about messiah bruising the nations with a rod of iron and daniel's prophecy about the judgment where he speaks of the thrones being cast down and the ancient of days judging the world psalm two verses six to nine daniel chapter seven verses nine to twenty two i think that nicodemus like most jews was filled with the expectation that when messiah came he would come with power and great glory and judge all men our lord corrects this notion in this verse he declares that messiah's first advent was not to judge but to save people from their sins he says in another place i came not to judge the world but to save the world john chapter twelve verse forty seven the greek word for judging and condemning it must be remembered is one and the same judgment and the condemnation of the ungodly our lord would have us know are not the work of the first advent but of the second the special work of the first advent was to seek and save that which was lost that world through him saved this sentence must clearly be interpreted with some qualification it would contradict other plain texts of scripture if we took it to mean god sent his son into the world that all the world might finally be saved through him and none be lost in fact our lord himself declares in the very next verse that he that believeth not is condemned already the meaning of the sentence evidently is that all the world might have a door of salvation opened through christ that salvation might be provided for all the world and that so any one in the world believing on christ might be saved in this view it is like the expression of st john the father sent the son to be the saviour of the world first john chapter four verse fourteen the expression god hath sent in this verse ought not to be overlooked it is very frequently applied in st john's gospel to our lord at least thirty-eight times we find him speaking of himself as him whom god hath sent it is probably from this expression that st paul derives the peculiar name which he gives to our lord 
the apostle of our profession hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 the apostle means simply the sent one the readiness of natural man everywhere to regard christ as a judge much more than as a savior is a curious fact the whole system of the roman catholic church is full of the idea people are taught to be afraid of christ and to flee to the virgin mary ignorant protestants are not much better they often regard christ as a kind of judge whose demands they will have to satisfy at the last day much more than as a present personal saviour and friend our lord seems to foresee this error and to correct it in the words of this text calvin observes on this verse whenever our sins press us whenever satan would drive us to despair we ought to hold out this shield that god is unwilling that we should be overwhelmed with everlasting destruction because he has appointed his son to be the salvation of the world verse eighteen he that believeth on him is not condemned in this verse our lord shows nicodemus another heavenly thing he declares the privileges of believing and the peril of not believing in the son of god nicodemus had addressed him as a teacher come from god he would have nicodemus know that he was the high and holy one to believe on whom was life eternal and not to believe on whom was everlasting destruction life or death was before men if they believed and received him as the messiah they would be saved if they believed not they would die in their sins the expression he that believeth deserves special notice it is the third time that our lord speaks of believing on himself and the consequence of believing within four verses it shows the immense importance of faith in the sinner's justification it is that one thing without which eternal life cannot be had it shows the amazing graciousness of the gospel and its admirable suitableness to the wants of human nature a man may have been the worst of sinners but if he will only believe he is at once pardoned last but not least it shows the need of clear distinct views of the nature of saving faith and the importance of keeping it entirely distinct from works of any kind in the matter of justification faith and faith only gives an interest in christ the old sentence of luther's days is perfectly true paradoxical and startling as it may sound the faith which justifies is not the faith which includes charity but the faith which lays hold on christ the expression is not condemned is equivalent to saying he is pardoned acquitted justified cleared from all guilt delivered from the curse of a broken law no longer counted a sinner but reckoned perfectly righteous in the sight of god the presentness of the phrase if one may coin a word should be especially noted it is not said that the believer shall not be condemned at the last day but that he is not condemned the very moment a sinner believes on christ his iniquities are taken away and he is counted righteous all that believe are justified from all things acts chapter thirteen verse thirty nine he believeth not condemned already this sentence means that he who refuses to believe on christ is in a state of condemnation before god even while he lives the curse of a broken law which we all deserve is upon him his sins are upon his head he is reckoned guilty and dead before god and there is but a step between him and hell faith takes all a man's sins away unbelief keeps them all on him through faith a man is made an heir of heaven though kept outside till he dies 
through unbelief a man is already a subject of the devil though not yet entirely in his power and within hell the moment a man believes all charges are completely wiped away from his name so long as a man does not believe his sins cover him over and make him abominable before god and the just wrath of god abides upon him melanchthon remarks that the sentence of god's condemnation which was passed at the beginning thou shalt surely die remains in full force and unrepealed against every one who does not believe on christ no new condemnation is needful every man or woman who does not believe is under the curse and condemned already because not believed name son of god this sentence is justly thought to prove that no sin is so great and so damning and ruinous to the soul as unbelief in one sense it is the only unpardonable sin all other sins may be forgiven however many and great and a man may stand complete before god but if a man will not believe on christ there is no hope for him and if he persists in his unbelief he cannot be saved nothing is so provoking and offensive to god as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul other sins may be scarlet filthy and abominable but not to believe on christ is to bar the door in our own way and to cut off ourselves entirely from heaven it has been truly remarked that it was a greater sin in judas iscariot not to believe on christ for pardon after he had betrayed him than to betray him into the hands of his enemies to betray him no doubt was an act of enormous covetousness wickedness and ingratitude but not to seek him afterwards by faith for pardon was to disbelieve his mercy love and power to save the expression the name as the object of faith is explained in chapter one verse twelve here as frequently it stands for the attributes character and office of the son of god luther quoted by brown remarks henceforward he who is condemned must not complain of adam and his inborn sin the seed of the woman promised by god to bruise the head of the serpent is now come and has atoned for sin and taken away condemnation but he must cry out against himself for not having accepted and believed in the christ the devil's head bruiser and sin strangler if i do not believe the same sin and condemnation must continue verse nineteen this is the condemnation etc in this verse our lord shows nicodemus one more heavenly thing he unfolds to him the true cause of the ruin of those who are lost primarily i think our lord had in view the unbelieving jews of his own day and the real reason of their rejection of himself it was not that there was any want of evidence of his messiahship they had evidence enough and to spare the real reason was that they had no mind to give up their sins secondarily i think our lord had in view the future history of all christians and the true cause of the ruin of all who are not saved in every age it is not because there is any want of light to guide men to heaven it is not because god is wanting in love and unwilling to save the real reason is that men in every age love their own sins and will not come to christ that they may be delivered from them the expression this is the condemnation is evidently very elliptical and the full meaning must be supplied it is probably equivalent to saying this is the cause of the condemnation this is the true account of it 
the following elliptical expressions are somewhat similar and all are found in st john's first epistle this is the promise this is the love of god this is the victory this is the confidence first john chapter two verse twenty five chapter five verse four and fourteen that light is come into the world it is a question in the sentence whether light means christ himself or the light of christ's gospel i am inclined to think that our lord meant to include both ideas he has come as a light to the world and the gospel that he has brought with him is like its author a strong contrast to the ignorance and wickedness of the earth men loved darkness rather than light the darkness in this sentence means moral darkness and mental darkness sin ignorance superstition and irreligion men cannot come to christ and receive his gospel without parting with all this and they love it too well to part with it because their deeds were evil this sentence means that their habits of life were wicked and any doctrine which necessitated a change of these habits they naturally hated throughout this verse i am inclined to think that the past tense loved ought to be taken in a present sense proleptically to use a grammarian's phrase as is frequently the case in the new testament see john chapter fifteen verse eight and romans chapter eight verse thirty the meaning will then be men have loved do love and always will love darkness in consequence of the corruption of human nature as long as the world stands the sentence then becomes a solemn description of a state of things which was not only to be seen among the jews while our lord was on earth but would be seen everywhere to the end of time the verse is one which deserves special notice because of the deep mystery it unfolds it tells us the true reason why men miss heaven and are lost in hell the origin of evil we are not told the reason why evil men are lost we are told plainly there is not a word about any decree of god predestining men to destruction there is not a syllable about anything deficient or wanting either in god's love or in christ's atonement on the contrary our lord tells us that light has come into the world that god has revealed enough of the way of salvation to make men inexcusable if they are not saved but the real account of the matter is that men have naturally no will or inclination to use the light they love their own dark and corrupt ways more than the ways which god proposes to them they therefore reap the fruit of their own ways and will have at last what they loved they loved darkness and they will be cast into outer darkness they did not like the light and so they will be shut out from the light eternally in short lost souls will be what they willed to be and they will have what they loved the words because their deeds were evil are very instructive they teach us that where men have no love to christ and his gospel and will not receive him their lives and their works will prove at last to have been evil their habits of life may not be gross and immoral they may even be comparatively decent and pure but the last day will prove them to have been in reality evil pride of intellect or selfishness or love of man's applause or dislike to submission of will or self-righteousness or some other false principle will be found to have run through all their conduct in one way or another when men refuse to come to christ their deeds will always prove to be evil rejection of the gospel will always be found to be connected with some moral obliquity when christ is refused we may be quite sure that there is something or other in life or heart which is not right if a man does not love light his deeds are evil human eyes may not detect the flaw 
but the eyes of an all-seeing God do. The whole verse is a deeply humbling one. It shows the folly of all excuses for not receiving the gospel, drawn from intellectual difficulties, from God's predestination, from our own inability to change ourselves, or to see things with the eyes of others. All such excuses are scattered to the winds by this solemn verse. People do not come to Christ, and do continue unconverted, just because they do not wish and do not want to come to Christ. They love something else better than the light. The elect of God prove themselves to be elect by choosing the things which are according to God's mind. The wicked prove themselves to be only fit for destruction by choosing, loving, and following the things which must lead to destruction. Quesnel says on this verse, The greatest misfortune of men does not consist in their being subject to sin, corruption, and blindness, but in their rejecting the Deliverer, the Physician, and the Light itself. Verse 20. Every one that doeth evil, etc., etc. This verse and the following one form a practical application of all that our Lord has been saying to Nicodemus, and are also a logical consequence of the preceding verse. Like the preceding verse, these two verses apply primarily to the Jews in our Lord's day, and secondarily to every nation to which the light of the gospel comes. They are a most remarkable appeal to an inquirer's conscience, and supply a most searching test of the sincerity of a man in Nicodemus's state of mind. The words, every one that doeth evil, mean every unconverted person, every one whose heart is not right and honest in God's sight, and whose actions are consequently evil and ungodly. Every such person hateth the light, neither cometh to the light. He cannot really love Christ and the gospel, and will not honestly, and with his whole heart, seek Christ by faith, and embrace his gospel, until he is renewed. The reason of this is, that every unconverted person shrinks from having his ungodliness exposed. He does not wish his wicked way to be discovered, and his utter want of true righteousness and true preparedness for death, judgment, and eternity to be put to shame. He does not like his deeds to be reproved, and therefore he shrinks from the light, and keeps away from Christ. The application of this verse must doubtless be made with caution. In the case of many unconverted persons, its truth is plain as noonday. They love sin and hate true religion, and get away from the gospel, the Bible, and religious people as much as they possibly can. In the case of others, its truth is not so apparent at first sight. There are many unconverted persons who profess to like the gospel, and seem to have no prejudice against it, and to hear it with pleasure, and yet remain unconverted. Yet even in the case of these persons, the text would be found perfectly true if their hearts were really known. With all their seeming love to the light, they do not really love it with all their heart. There is something or other which they love better, and which keeps them back from Christ. There is something or other which they do not want to give up, and do not like to be discovered and reproved. Man's eyes may not detect it, but the eyes of God can. The general principle of the text will be found true at last, of every hearer of the gospel who dies unconverted. He did not thoroughly love the light. He did not really want to be changed. He did not truly and honestly seek salvation. All this was true of the Jews in the time of Nicodemus, and it is no less true of all mankind to whom the gospel comes in the present day. Right hearts will always come to Christ. If a man keeps away from the light, his heart is wrong. He is one that doeth evil. 
there is a curious difference between the greek word translated doeth in this verse and the one translated doeth in the next verse steer and alfred think the difference instructive and meaning they say that the greek word used for doeth evil means the habit of action without fruit or result on the contrary the greek word for doing truth signifies the true doing of good good fruit good that remains verse twenty one he that doeth truth etc this verse it is needless to say is closely connected with the preceding one the preceding verse describes the unconverted man the verse before us describes the converted man the expression he that doeth truth signifies the person whose heart is honest the man who is truly converted however weak and ignorant and whose heart and actions are consequently true and right in the sight of god the phrase is frequently found in st john's writings see john chapter eighteen verse thirty seven first john chapter one verses six to eight chapter two verse four chapter three verse nineteen second john chapter one third john chapter three verse four every such person will always come to christ and embrace his gospel when it is brought near him he will have an honest desire that his deeds may be made manifest and that his real character may be discovered to himself and others he will have an honest wish to know whether his habits of life are really godly or wrought in god the principle here laid down is of great importance and experience shows that the assertion of the text is always confirmed by facts i believe there was not a truly good man among the jews in our lord's day who did not at once receive christ and welcome christ's gospel as soon as it was brought before him nathaniel was an example he was a man who did truth under the obscure light of the law of moses as ministered by scribes and pharisees but the moment the messiah was brought before him he received him and believed so also i believe when the gospel comes into a church a parish or a congregation it is always gladly received and embraced by any whose hearts are true to be a truly godly man and yet to refuse to come to christ is an impossibility he that hears of christ and does not come to him and believe on him as god's appointed way of salvation has something fatally wrong about him he is not really doing truth he is not a converted man gospel light is a mighty magnet if there is any one that has true religion within its sphere it will attract to itself that person to be truly religious and not to gravitate towards him who is the great centre of all light and truth is impossible if a man refuses christ he cannot be a godly man the application of the last two verses to the case of nicodemus and those jews who were of the same state of mind as nicodemus is plain and obvious our lord leaves on the pharisee's mind a solemn and heart-searching conclusion think not that you can stay away from me after hearing this discourse and be saved if you are a really earnest inquirer after truth and your heart is honest and sincere you must go on you must come to the light and embrace the light and you will do so however great your present ignorance if on the other hand you are not really desirous to serve god you will prove it by keeping away from my gospel and by not confessing me as the messiah it is a pleasant reflection that after events prove that nicodemus was one who did truth he used the light our lord graciously imparted to him he came forward and spoke for christ in the council and at last when he boldly helped to bury christ he made it manifest to all israel that his deeds were wrought in god 
let it be noted that the two verses which conclude our lord's address to nicodemus are a most instructive test of the sincerity and reality of persons who appear anxious inquirers in religion if they are honest and true they will go on and come to the full light of christ if they are not honest and sincere but only influenced by temporary excitement they will probably go back from the light and will certainly not close with christ and become his disciples this should be pressed by ministers on all inquirers if you are true you will come to the light if you are not true you will go back or stand still you will not draw near and close with christ the test will never be found to fail those who wish to see how exceedingly weak the beginnings of grace may be in a heart and yet be true as it proved in the case of nicodemus will find the matter most skilfully treated in a small work of perkins little known called a grain of mustard seed a man may have the beginning of regeneration in his heart and yet be so ignorant as to not know what regeneration is in concluding these long notes for the length of which the immense importance of the passage must be my apology i think we should remark that we never hear a word about nicodemus being baptized this fact is a strong incidental evidence to my mind that the baptism of water was not the subject which our lord had in view when he told nicodemus that he must be born of water and the spirit one other thing ought to be remarked in leaving the subject of our lord's conversation with nicodemus that thing is the singular fullness of matter by which the whole of our lord's address is characterized within the space of twenty verses we read of the work of all three persons in the trinity the father's love the son's death on the cross and the spirit's operation in the new birth of man the corruption of man's nature the nature of regeneration and the efficacy of faith in christ the way to escape perishing in hell the true cause of man's condemnation if he is lost and the true marks of sincerity in an inquirer a fuller sermon was never delivered than that which was here preached to nicodemus in one evening there is hardly a single important point in divinity which is left untouched. End of section 13。section 14 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 1, by J. C. Ryle. Chapter 3, verses 22 to 36 jealousy and party spirit true humility christ's dignity set forth salvation a present thing john chapter three verses twenty two to thirty six after these things came jesus and his disciples into the land of judea and there he tarried with them and baptized and john also was baptizing at anon near to salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for john was not yet cast into prison then there arose a question between some of john's disciples and the jews about purifying and they came unto john and said unto him rabbi he that was with thee beyond jordan to whom thou bearest witness behold the same baptizeth and all men come to him john answered and said a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven Ye yourselves bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, 
rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice this my joy therefore is fulfilled he must increase but i must decrease he that cometh from above is above all he that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth he that cometh from heaven is above all and what he has seen and heard that he testifieth and no man receiveth his testimony he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that god is true for he whom god hath sent speaketh the words of god for god giveth not the spirit by measure unto him the father loveth the son and hath given all things into his hand he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life and he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abideth on him on one account this passage deserves the special attention of all devout readers of the bible it contains the last testimony of john the baptist concerning our lord jesus christ that faithful man of god was the same at the end of his ministry that he was at the beginning the same in his views of self the same in his views of christ happy is that church whose ministers are as steady bold and constant to one thing as john the baptist we have firstly in these verses a humbling example of the petty jealousies and party spirit which may exist among professors of religion we are told that the disciples of john the baptist were offended because the ministry of jesus began to attract more attention than that of their master they came to john and said unto him rabbi he that was with thee beyond jordan to whom thou bearest witness behold the same baptizeth and all men come to him the spirit exhibited in this complaint is unhappily too common in the churches of christ the succession of these complainers has never failed there are never wanting religious professors who care far more for the increase of their own party than for the increase of true christianity and who cannot rejoice in the spread of religion if it spreads anywhere except within their own pale there is a generation which can see no good doing except in the ranks of its own congregations and which seems ready to shut men out of heaven if they will not enter therein under its banner the true christian must watch and pray against the spirit here manifested by john's disciples it is very insidious very contagious and very injurious to the cause of religion nothing so defiles christianity and gives the enemies of truth such occasion to blaspheme as jealousy and party spirit among christians wherever there is real grace we should be ready and willing to acknowledge it even though it may be outside our own pale we should strive to say with the apostle if christ be preached i rejoice yea and will rejoice philippians chapter one verse eighteen if good is done we ought to be thankful though it even may not be done in what we think the best way if souls are saved we ought to be glad whatever be the means that god may think fit to employ we have secondly in these verses a splendid pattern of true and godly humility we see in john the baptist a very different spirit from that displayed by his disciples he begins by laying down the great principle that acceptance with man is a very special gift of god and that we must therefore not presume to find fault when others have more acceptance than ourselves a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven he goes on to remind his followers of his repeated declaration that one greater than himself was coming i said i am not the christ 
he tells them that his office compared to that of christ is that of the bridegroom's friend compared to the bridegroom and finally he solemnly affirms that christ must and will become greater and greater and that he himself must become less and less important until like a star eclipsed by the rising sun he has completely disappeared a frame of mind like this is the highest degree of grace to which mortal man can attain the greatest saint in the sight of god is the man who is most thoroughly clothed with humility first peter chapter five verse five would we know the prime secret of being men of the stamp of abraham and moses and job and david and daniel and st paul and john the baptist they were all eminently humble men living at different ages and enjoying very different degrees of light in this matter at least they were all agreed in themselves they saw nothing but sin and weakness to god they gave all the praise of what they were let us walk in their steps let us covet earnestly the best gifts but above all let us covet humility the way to true honor is to be humble no man ever was so praised by christ as the very man who says here i must decrease the humble john the baptist we have thirdly in these verses an instructive declaration of christ's honor and dignity john the baptist teaches his disciples once more the true greatness of the person whose growing popularity offended them once more and perhaps for the last time he proclaims him as one worthy of all honor and praise he uses one striking expression after another to convey a correct idea of the majesty of christ he speaks of him as the bridegroom of the church as he that cometh from above as he whom god hath sent as him to whom the spirit is given without measure as him whom the father loves and into whose hands all things are given to believe in whom is life everlasting and to reject whom is eternal ruin each of these phrases is full of deep meaning and would supply matter for a long sermon all show the depth and height of john's spiritual attainments more honorable things are nowhere written concerning jesus than these verses recorded as spoken by john the baptist let us endeavor in life and death to hold the same views of the lord jesus to which john here gives expression we can never make too much of christ our thoughts about the church the ministry and the sacraments may easily become too high and extravagant we can never have too high thoughts of christ can never love him too much trust him too implicitly lay too much weight upon him and speak too highly in his praise he is worthy of all the honor that we can give him he will be all in heaven let us see to it that he is all in our hearts on earth we have lastly in these verses a broad assertion of the nearness and presentness of the salvation of true christians john the baptist declares he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life he is not intended to look forward with a sick heart to a far distant privilege he hath everlasting life as soon as he believes pardon peace and a complete title to heaven are an immediate possession they become a believer's own from the very moment he puts faith in christ they will not be more completely his own if he lives to the age of methuselah the truth before us is one of the most glorious privileges of the gospel there are no works to be done 
no conditions to be fulfilled, no price to be paid, no wearing years of probation to be passed, before a sinner can be accepted with God. Let him only believe on Christ, and he is at once forgiven. Salvation is close to the chief of sinners. Let him only repent and believe, and this day it is his own. By Christ all that believe are at once justified from all things. Let us leave the whole passage with one grave and heart-searching thought. If faith in Christ brings with it present and immediate privileges, to remain unbelieving is to be in a state of tremendous peril. If heaven is very near to the believer, hell must be very near to the unbeliever. The greater the mercy that the Lord Jesus offers, the greater will be the guilt of those who neglect and reject it. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Notes, John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. Verse 22. Came Jesus into land of Judea. Some have thought from this expression that the conversation between Christ and Nicodemus did not take place in Jerusalem or Judea, but in Galilee. Others have thought that a long interval must be supposed to have elapsed between the conversation and the events which are here narrated. I can agree with neither view. I believe the true explanation is that the land here spoken of means the rural part or territory of Judea, in contradistinction to the capital town of the territory, Jerusalem. The meaning will then be that Jesus left the city and went into the country districts. The expression, Thou Bethlehem in the land of Judea, is similar. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6. He tarried. The Greek word so rendered signifies a lengthened stay. It is translated in other places, continued or abode. It is noteworthy that many of the events of our Lord's ministry in Jerusalem and the surrounding district are evidently not recorded in any of the Gospels. And baptized. That our Lord did not baptize with his own hands, but left the ordinance to be administered by his disciples, as work inferior to that of preaching, we may learn from the next chapter, John chapter 4, verse 2. Lightfoot observes that the administration of Christ's ordinances by his ministers, according to his institution, is as his own work. The disciples' baptizing is called his baptizing. The questions have often been raised. In what name was this baptism administered? Was it baptism that needed to be repeated after the day of Pentecost? The most probable answer to the first question is that it was a baptism in the name of Jesus upon profession of belief that he was the Messiah. The most probable answer to the second question is that it was certainly not a baptism that required repetition. To suppose that a baptism, administered by our Lord's disciples, under our Lord's own eye, and by our Lord's own command, was not as effectual and profitable an ordinance as any baptism that was ever afterwards administered, is a most improbable supposition. It may be remarked here that there is no ground for the common idea that it is absolutely necessary that baptism should be administered in the name of the Trinity in order to be a valid and Christian baptism. In three cases recorded in the Acts we are expressly told that baptism was administered in the name of Jesus Christ, and no mention is made of all three persons in the Trinity. See Acts chapter 2 verse 38, chapter 8 verse 37, chapter 10 verse 48. In all these cases, however, it will be remembered, baptism in the name of Christ was practically baptism in the name of the Trinity, 
it was confession of faith in him whom the father sent and who was the giver of the holy ghost as a general rule in the church of christ no doubt baptism ought to be in the name of the trinity matthew chapter twenty eight verse nineteen but that our lord's disciples in the place now before us did not baptize in the name of the trinity is pretty certain and that baptism in the name of jesus is valid christian baptism seems clear from the places referred to in acts hutcheson remarks that christ's own bodily presence filled with the holy spirit without measure did not take away the use of external ordinances such as baptism the quaker's opinion that we need no external ordinances under the gospel is hard to reconcile with such a text as this verse twenty three john also was baptizing we can hardly doubt that john baptized all who came to him at this period of his ministry in the name of jesus upon confession of faith that jesus was the messiah it seems most improbable that after publicly pointing out jesus as the lamb of god and the promised saviour he would be content to baptize with the baptism of repentance which he had administered before christ appeared in short john's baptism at this period and the baptism administered by christ's disciples must have been precisely the same i must remark here that the opinion maintained by roman catholics and those who agree with them that there was an essential difference between john's baptism and christian baptism seems to me entirely destitute of foundation i agree with brentius lightfoot and most of the protestant commentators that john's baptism and christian baptism differed only in circumstantials but were the same in substance and that a person baptized by john the baptist had no need to be rebaptized after the day of pentecost unless we take this view i cannot see any evidence that peter and andrew and james and john ever received christian baptism at all there is not a single word in the gospel to show that they were ever baptized again after leaving john the baptist's company and becoming christ's disciples moreover we are expressly told that jesus himself baptized not john chapter four verse two the only baptism that the first apostles received appears to have been john the baptist's baptism this fact seems to me to prove irresistibly that john's baptism was essentially of equal value with christian baptism and that a person baptized by john had no need to be baptized again the well-known passage in acts acts chapter nineteen verses one to six which is always quoted in opposition to the view i maintain does not appear to me at all conclusive and decisive upon the question now before us for one thing the persons described in that passage as having only been baptized with john's baptism seem to have been ignorant of the first principles of christianity they said we have not so much as heard whether there be any holy ghost that expression shows pretty clearly that they had not been hearers of john the baptist who frequently spoke of the holy ghost matthew chapter three verse eleven and had not been baptized by john himself it is most probable that they were inhabitants of ephesus who had only heard apollos preaching and knew even less than their teacher whether st paul might not think it needful to administer baptism to such ignorant disciples as these who could give no intelligent account of christianity is a question i would not undertake to decide but beside this it is by no means certain that these disciples were really baptized again with water at all brentius holds that the words they were baptized in the name of the lord jesus means the baptism of the spirit stresso maintains that the words are the concluding sentence of st paul's address to these ignorant men 
I cannot say that either of these last views is altogether satisfactory. All I say is that I would infinitely rather adopt either of them than hold such a monstrous opinion as the Romish one, that John's baptism was not Christian baptism at all, and needed to be repeated. The difficulties in the way of this last view appear to me far greater than the difficulties in the way of the one which I support. To say that the first five apostles never received any Christian baptism at all is really preposterous. To assert that Christ himself baptized them is to assert what the Bible never even hints at. There is not a shadow of proof that Jesus ever baptized a single person. I see no escape from the conclusion that Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel either received John's baptism or no baptism at all. Whatever men may think about John's baptism before the time when our Lord appeared, they will never prove that the baptism he administered in the text before us was not Christian baptism. To suppose that John would go on administering an ordinance which he knew was imperfect while Christian baptism was being administered by Christ's disciples a few miles off is simply absurd. Anon, near to Salem. It is not certainly known where this place was. The probability is that it was somewhere in Judea. In the list of the cities given to the tribe of Judah we find together Shilem and Ain. Joshua chapter 15 verse 32. It is very possible that these two may be the Anon and Salem now before us. The changes which proper names undergo in passing from one language to another, everyone knows, are very great. Because there was much water. It is frequently assumed from this expression that John's baptism was immersion and not sprinkling, and that on this account a great supply of water was absolutely needful. It may perhaps have been so. The point is one of no importance. That immersion, however, is necessary to the validity of baptism, and that sprinkling alone is not sufficient, are points that can never be demonstrated from Scripture. So long as water is used, it seems to be left a matter of indifference whether the person baptized is dipped or sprinkled. I should find it very hard to believe that the three thousand baptized on the day of Pentecost, or the jailer and his family, baptized at midnight in the Philippian prison, were all immersed. The Church of England wisely allows either mode of applying water to be used. To suppose that dipping is forbidden to English churchmen is mere ignorance. They came, baptized. This is an elliptical sentence. We are not told who are meant by they. It is like men in Matthew chapter 5 verse 15, and means generally people. Verse 24. John, not yet, prison. John's diligence in his master's work is here pointed out. He doubtless knew that his ministry was fulfilled when Christ appeared, and that the time of his own departure and violent death under Herod's hands was at hand. Yet he worked on to the very last. Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Matthew chapter 24, verse 46. Theophylact thinks that John's early death was permitted in God's providence in order to prevent any distraction in people's minds between him and Christ. Verse 25. There arose, question, disciples, Jews, purifying. The nature and particulars of this dispute must be left to conjecture. We can only form an idea of it from the context. It seems probable that it was a dispute between the unbelieving Jews and the disciples of John the Baptist about the comparative values of the two baptisms which were being administered in Judea, viz. John's baptism and Christ's. 
which was the most purifying which was the most efficacious which was the most valuable of the two the jews probably taunted john's disciples with the decline of their master's popularity john's disciples in ignorant zeal and heat for their master probably contended that no new teacher's baptism could possibly be more purifying and valuable than that of their own masters wordsworth remarks on the word purifying that st john never uses the word baptize and never calls john the baptist by his common surname the baptist he says john was no longer the baptist when st john wrote his baptism had passed away musculus on this verse observes the excessive readiness of men in every age to raise questions controversies and persecutions about the ceremonies of merely human institutions while about faith and hope and love and humility and patience and mortification of the flesh and renewal of the spirit they exhibit no zeal at all controversies about baptism certainly appear to be among the oldest and most mischievous by which the church has been plagued verse twenty six they came unto john etc the language of the whole verse seems intended to show that john's disciples were jealous for their master's ministry and that its declining popularity in consequence of our lord's appearance in judea as a public teacher was a cause of annoyance to them this verse is an instructive instance of that littleness and party spirit which are so painfully common among christians when one minister's popularity is interfered with by the appearance of another he with thee thou bearest witness this expression shows the publicity and notoriety of john's testimony to our lord as the messiah and the lamb of god it was testimony not borne privately in a corner but in the hearing and full knowledge of all john's disciples it would seem to have had very little effect on their minds the words fell on their ears but went no further behold the same baptizeth this expression implies partly surprise and partly complaint in any case it shows how little the bulk of john's disciples understood that jesus really was the messiah promised in the prophecies if they had understood it they would surely neither have been surprised nor annoyed at him for baptizing and becoming popular they would rather have expected it and rejoiced at it it is one among many proofs that ministers may be loved by their hearers and may tell them truth faithfully and yet be utterly unable to make their hearers understand or believe few are like andrew and follow jesus when their minister says behold the lamb the most are as though they did not hear at all all men came to him these words must doubtless be taken with qualification the expression all men only means many persons we know as a fact that not all men came to christ moreover we must remember that out of those who did come to christ very few believed john says in his reply to the disciples no man receiveth his testimony allowance must be made for the irritation under which john's disciples spoke when men are vexed in spirit by seeing their own party diminishing they are often tempted to use exaggerated and incorrect expressions hutcheson remarks on this verse that carnal emulation is an old and great sin in the church and even among professors it being the foul fruit of a carnal temper to look on the success of one man's gifts as the debasing of another's who is faithful and to count the thriving of god's work in one minister's hand the disgracing of another who is not so much flocked to 
Cyril remarks on this verse how admirably God can bring good out of apparent evil. Here, as in many cases, a carnal and unkind saying of John's disciples gives occasion to John's admirable testimony about Christ. Verse 27. John answered, A man can receive nothing, etc. This sentence is the statement of a general truth in religion. Success, promotion, and growth of influence are gifts which God keeps entirely in his own hands. If one faithful minister's popularity wanes, while another's popularity and influence over men's hearts increase, the thing is of God, and we must submit to his appointment. Psalm 75, verse 6. The application of the sentence is not to Christ, as Chrysostom thought, but to John the Baptist himself, as Augustine thought. They are meant to imply, I cannot command continued success in my ministry, I can only receive what God gives me. If he thinks fit to give any one more acceptance with men than myself, I cannot prevent it, and have no right to complain. All success is of God. All that I have had, at any period of my ministry, has been received and none deserved. To apply the sentence to our Lord seems to me an unsatisfactory interpretation, and derogatory to the dignity of Christ's ministry. Those who take this view would probably prefer the marginal reading of the word receive, and would render it, no man can take to himself anything. The sentence would then be like St. Paul's word to the Hebrews, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4. But the translation receive and the application to John the Baptist appear to me more agreeable to the context and the general spirit of John's reply. And although the word a man ought not to have much stress laid on it, I cannot help thinking that John uses it intentionally in order to point to himself. A mere man like me can receive nothing but what is given him from heaven. Lightfoot thinks that the Greek word rendered receive means perceive or apprehend, and that John meant, I see by this instance of yourselves that no man can learn or understand anything unless it is given him from heaven. He regards the sentence as John's rebuke to his disciples for incredulity and stupidity. I doubt myself whether the Greek word will bear the sense Lightfoot would put on it. The expression from heaven is equivalent to saying from God, See Daniel chapter 4 verse 26, Luke chapter 15 verse 21. The whole verse is a most useful antidote to that jealousy which sometimes springs up in a minister's mind when he sees a brother's ministry prospering more than his own. Verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness, I said, etc. John here reminds his disciples that he had repeatedly told them that he was not the Christ, and that he was only a forerunner sent before him. They ought to have remembered this. If they had done so, they would not have been surprised at the rise and progress of Christ's ministry, but would rather have expected him to outshine and surpass their master, as a matter of course. The verse is an instructive illustration of the forgetfulness of hearers. John's testimony to the dignity of Christ, and his superiority to himself, had been constantly repeated but it had been all thrown away on his disciples, and when Christ began to receive greater honors than their master, and their own party began to grow smaller than that of Christ's disciples, they were offended. People soon forget what they do not like. Verse 29. He that hath, bride, bridegroom, etc. 
in this verse john the baptist explains the relative positions occupied by himself and christ by a familiar illustration in tracing it out it is of great importance not to press the points of resemblance too far the illustration is one which specially requires to be handled with reverence decency and discretion the bride in the verse signifies the whole company of believers the lamb's wife revelation chapter twenty one verse nine the bridegroom is the lord jesus christ himself the friend of the bridegroom means john the baptist and all other faithful ministers of christ according to the marriage customs of the jews there were certain persons called the bridegroom's friends who were the means of communication between him and the bride before the marriage their duty was simply to set forward and promote the bridegroom's interests and to remove all obstacles as far as possible to a speedy union of the parties to accomplish this end and promote a thoroughly good understanding between the bride and the bridegroom was their sole office if they saw the bridegroom's suit prospering and at last saw him received favorably and gladly by the bride their end was accomplished and their work was done to all this john the baptist makes allusion in the verse now before us he tells his disciples that his sole work was to set forward and promote a good understanding between christ and men if he saw that work prospering he was thankful and would rejoice even though the result was that his own personal importance was diminished he would have his disciples know that the growing popularity of christ which offended them was the very thing which he longed to see he had no greater joy than to hear the voice of christ the bridegroom being listened to by believers the bride it was the very thing for which he had been preaching and ministering his joy was fulfilled the word hath means possessed as his own possession of the bride as bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh is the peculiar prerogative of the bridegroom genesis chapter two verse twenty three with this his friends have nothing to do the expression standeth must probably not be pressed too far some think that it is taken from the position occupied by the bridegroom's friends on the day when the bridegroom was first formally introduced to the bride they stood at a respectful distance and looked on the expression certainly implies inferiority st paul says that the jewish priests stand daily ministering but christ sat down on the right hand of god hebrews chapter ten verse twelve the expression heareth the bridegroom's voice like the last is one that must not be pressed too far it is a part of the drapery of the illustration when report was brought to john the baptist that jesus christ's ministry was accepted by some and that he found favor with many disciples then was fulfilled what is here meant john heard the bridegroom's voice and saw the successful progress of his mission and seeing and hearing this rejoiced the whole verse is a most instructive picture of a true minister's work and character he is a friend of christ and is ordained in order to promote a union between christ and souls second corinthians chapter two verse two he must rigidly adhere to that office and must never take to himself that which does not belong to him the minister who allows honor to be given to himself which only belongs to jesus and exalts his own office into that of a mediator and priest is treacherously usurping a position which is not his but his master's the professing christian who treats ministers as if they were priests and mediators is dishonoring jesus christ and basely giving that honor to the bridegroom's friends which belongs exclusively to the bridegroom himself the expression this my joy is fulfilled 
is a very instructive one for ministers it shows that the truest happiness of a minister should consist in christ's voice being heard by souls now we live says st paul if ye stand fast in the lord first thessalonians chapter three verse eight etc it deserves notice that when our lord at another period of his ministry expressly speaks of himself as the bridegroom in his reply to the disciples of john the baptist matthew chapter nine verse fifteen he seems purposefully to remind them of their master's words musculus on this verse observes the day of the lord will declare what kind of zeal that is in our popish bishops who profess to be influenced by zeal for the love of the church which is christ's bride against christ's enemies the day will declare whether a zeal which makes them shed innocent blood and persecute members of christ is the zeal of true friends of the bridegroom or of treacherous suitors of the bride verse thirty he must increase i decrease in this sentence john the baptist tells his complaining disciples that it is right and proper and necessary that christ should grow in dignity and that he himself should be less thought of he was only the servant christ was the master he was only the forerunner and ambassador christ was the king he was only the morning star christ was the sun the idea implied appears to be that of the stars gradually fading away as the sun rises after the break of day the stars do not really perish or really become less but they pale and become invisible before the superior brightness of the great centre of light the sun does not really become larger or really increase in brightness but it becomes more fully visible and occupies a position in which it more completely fills our vision so was it with john the baptist and christ every faithful minister ought to be like-minded with john he must be content to be less thought of by his believing hearers in proportion as they grow in knowledge and faith and see christ himself more clearly as churches decay and fall away they think less of christ and more of their ministers as churches revive and receive spiritual life they think less of ministers and more of christ to a decaying church the sun is going down and the stars are beginning to appear to a reviving church the stars are waning and the sun appearing verse thirty one he cometh above above all in this sentence john the baptist asserts the infinite superiority of christ over himself or any other child of adam whatever office he may fill christ is from above he is not merely man but god he came from heaven when he took our nature on him and was born as god he is far above all his ministers and servants as the creator is above the creature he is far above all principality and power and every name that can be named he is head over all things to the church and richly deserves all the honor and dignity and respect and reverence that man can give ephesians chapter one verses twenty one to twenty two he that is of the earth earthly speaketh earth in this sentence john the baptist expresses in strong language the comparative inferiority to christ of himself or of any other minister all who like me he seems to say are only men mere dust and clay descended from a father who was made out of the dust of the ground are comparatively earthly the weakness and feebleness of our origin pervade all our doings by nature earthly our works are earthly and our speaking and preaching earthly in short 
there will be a savour of humanity about the ministry of every one who is naturally engendered of the seed of adam the difficulty that some see in john the baptist calling his own ministry earthly is quite needlessly raised it is evident that he calls it so comparatively compared to the teaching of scribes and pharisees it was not earthly but heavenly compared to the teaching of him who came from heaven it was earthly a candle compared to darkness is light but the same candle compared to the sun is a poor dim spark he that cometh heaven above all this sentence is only a repetition of the beginning of the verse it is a second assertion of christ's greatness and superiority over any mere man in order to impress the matter more deeply on those who heard it mark what i tell you john the baptist seems to say to his disciples i repeat emphatically that christ having come from heaven and being by nature god as well as man is far above me and all other ministers who are only men and nothing more some think as erasmus bengel wettstein olshausen and thulach that john the baptist's words end with the verse preceding the one now before us and that the words he that cometh from above begin the comment of john the evangelist i cannot for a moment admit this idea to be correct i see no necessity for it the whole passage runs on naturally as the language of john the baptist to the end of the chapter i see nothing unsuitable to john the baptist in the concluding verses they contain no truth which he was not likely to know i see nothing gained by this idea it throws no new light on the passage and is an awkward break which would never occur to a simple reader of the bible verse thirty two what seen heard testifieth in this sentence john the baptist shows the divinity of christ and his consequent superiority over himself in another point of view he says that christ bears witness to truths which he has seen and heard he is not like mere human ministers who only declare what they have been taught by the holy spirit and inspired to communicate to others as god he declares with authority truths which he had seen and heard and known from all eternity with the father john chapter five verses nineteen and thirty chapter eight verse thirty eight some draw a distinction between what our lord has seen and what he has heard they think that what christ has seen means what he has seen as one with god the father in essence and what christ has heard means what he has heard as a distinct person in the trinity or else they think what christ has seen means what he has seen with the father as god and what he has heard what he has heard from the father as man i doubt the correctness of either view i think it far more probable that the expression seen and heard is only a proverbial way of signifying perfect knowledge such as a person has intuitively or at first hand euthymius thinks that the expression seen and heard was purposefully used because of the weakness of john's hearers and that such expressions were necessary in order to give such hearers an adequate idea of christ's divine nature the word testifieth deserves notice as an expression peculiarly characteristic of christ's ministry he told pilate i come into the world that i should bear witness unto the truth john chapter eighteen verse twenty seven and no man receiveth his testimony the expression no man in this sentence must evidently from the following verses be taken with qualification it must mean very few andrew peter philip and others had received christ's testimony the sentence seems intended to rebuke the complaint uttered by john's disciples 
all men come unto him john seems to say however many persons come to hear jesus you will yet see that very few believe on him great as he is and deserving of far more reverence than myself you have yet to learn that even he is really believed on by few the crowds who follow him are unhappily not true believers the temporary popularity which attends his ministry is as worthless as that which attended my own pierce thinks that the greek word rendered and would have been better translated and yet as in john chapter seven verse nineteen and chapter nine verse thirty the notion of augustine's that no man in this sentence means none of the wicked seems very untenable and unsatisfactory verse thirty three he hath received etc in this verse john shows the great importance of receiving christ's testimony so far from being offended by the crowd which attended christ's ministry john's disciples should be thankful that so many heard him and that some few received his teaching into their hearts hath set to his seal this expression is peculiar and found nowhere else in the new testament in the same sense of course it does not mean any literal sealing it only means hath formally declared his belief hath publicly professed his conviction just as a man puts his seal to a document as a testimony that he consents to its contents in ancient days when few comparatively could write to affix a seal to a paper was a more common mode of expressing assent to it than to sign a name the sentence is equivalent to saying he that receives christ's testimony has set down his name as one who believes that god is true that god is true these words may be taken two ways according to some they mean he that receives christ declares his belief that it is the true god who has sent christ and that christ is no impostor but the messiah whom the true god of the old testament prophets promised to send according to others they mean he that receives christ declares his belief that god is true to his word and has kept the promise that he made to adam abraham and david that the greek word rendered true will bear this last meaning seems proved by the expression let god be true but every man a liar romans chapter three verse four either view makes good sense and good divinity but on the whole i prefer the second one it seems to me strongly confirmed by the expression in st john's first epistle he that believeth not god hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that god gave of his son first john chapter five verse ten some have thought that the sentence may mean he that receives christ declares his belief that christ is the true god and that it is parallel to first john chapter five verse twenty this is the true god but i do not think the greek words will admit of the interpretation if they would the greek fathers would never have overlooked this text in writing against the arians maldonatus seems to favor this opinion and says that cyril holds it but it certainly does not appear in cyril's commentary on the place verse thirty four he whom god hath sent in this verse john the baptist shows the dignity of christ and his superiority over all other teachers by another striking declaration about him he begins by giving him the well-known epithet which was peculiarly applied to messiah he whom god hath sent the sent one the one whom god hath sent into the world according to promise speaketh the words of god this sentence means that christ's words were not the words of a mere man like john himself or one of the prophets 
they were nothing less than the words of god he who heard them heard nothing less than god speaking the unity of the father and the son is so close that he who hears the teaching of the son hears the teaching of the father also compare john chapter 7 verse 16 chapter 5 verse 19 chapter 14 verses 10 and 11 chapter 8 verse 28 chapter 12 verse 49 when john the baptist spoke he spoke merely human words however true and good and scriptural but when christ spoke he spoke divine words even the words of god himself as Quisnell says, He spoke by the Holy Ghost, who is his own Spirit, who inseparably dwelleth in him, and by the possession of whose fullness he receives his unction and consecration. Theophylact remarks on this sentence, and others like it in St. John's Gospels, that we must not suppose that Christ needed to be taught by God the Father what to speak, because whatever the Father knows the Son also knows, as co-substantial with him so also when we read of the sun being sent we must think of him as a ray sent from the sun which is not in reality separate from the sun but a part of the sun itself some think that the expression speaketh the words of god in this place has special reference to the promise given to moses about messiah i will put my words in his mouth deuteronomy chapter eighteen verse eighteen for god giveth not spirit by measure him the expression by measure in this sentence means partially scantily stintedly in small degree it is the opposite to fully completely in unmeasured abundance thus we read in ezekiel's description of a time of scarcity at jerusalem they shall drink water by measure ezekiel chapter four verse sixteen the whole sentence is peculiar and requires careful interpretation the object of john the baptist is to show once more the infinite superiority of the lord jesus over himself or any other man to all others even the most eminent prophets and apostles god gives the holy spirit by measure their gifts and graces are both imperfect as st paul says they know in part and prophesy in part first corinthians chapter thirteen verse nine but with him whom god hath sent it is very different to him the holy ghost is given without measure in infinite fullness and completeness in his human nature the gifts and graces of the spirit are present without the slightest shadow of imperfection as man jesus of nazareth was anointed with the holy ghost and fitted for his office as our priest and prophet and king in a way and degree never granted to any other man acts chapter ten verse thirty eight all this is undoubtedly true but it is not in my opinion the whole truth of the sentence I believe that John the Baptist points not only to our Lord's human nature, but to his divinity. I believe his meaning to be, He whom God hath sent is one far above prophets and ministers, to whom the Spirit is only given by measure. He is one who is himself very God. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is one who, as a person in the Trinity, is eternally and ineffably united with God the Holy Spirit from him the holy spirit proceeds as well as from the father and is the spirit of christ and the spirit of the son as god it is impossible that he can be separated from the holy spirit to him therefore the spirit is not given by measure as if he were only a man he is god as well as man and as such he needeth not that the spirit should be given to him he has the spirit without measure because in the divine essence he and the spirit and the father are one and undivided 
I am inclined to hold the view just stated, because of the verses which follow. The object of John the Baptist, in this last testimony to Christ, appears to be to lead his disciples step by step to the highest view of Messiah's dignity. He would have them recognize in him one who is very God as well as very man. The view of the sentence before us, which is commonly adopted, appears to me an unsafe tendency. That the Spirit was given to our Lord as man, and given without measure, is doubtless true, but we must be very careful that we never forget a truth of no less importance. That truth is, that our Lord Jesus Christ never ceased to be God as well as man, and that as God he was never separate from the Spirit. As Henry says, the Spirit dwelt in him, not as in a vessel, but as in a fountain, as in a bottomless ocean. It deserves remark that the concluding words of the verse unto him are not found in the original Greek. This has led some to maintain that the second clause of the verse is only a general statement. God is not a God who gives the Spirit by measure. But all the best commentators, from Augustine downwards, hold the view of our translators, that it is Christ who is signified, and that unto him ought to be supplied in any translation. Chimnitius thinks that this verse specially refers to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, where it is predicted that the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit shall rest on Messiah. Verse 35. The Father loveth, Son, given all, hand. There is something, at first sight, abrupt and elliptical in this verse. The full meaning of it, I believe to be as follows. He whom God hath sent is one far above me or any other prophet. He is the eternal Son of God, whom the Father loved from all eternity, and into whose hands all things concerning man's salvation have been given and committed by an everlasting covenant. He is no mere man, as you, my disciples, ignorantly suppose. He is the Son, of whom it is written, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and so ye perish from the way. He is the Son to whom the Father has said, I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9. Instead of being jealous of his present popularity, you should serve him with fear, and rejoice before him with trembling. The love of the Father toward the Son, here spoken of, is a subject far too deep for man to fathom. It is an expression graciously accommodated to man's feeble understanding, and intended to signify that most intimate and ineffable union which exists between the first and second persons in the blessed trinity and the entire approbation and complacency with which the father regards the work of redemption undertaken by the son it is that love to which our lord refers in the words thou lovest me before the foundation of the world john chapter seventeen verse twenty four and which the father expressly asserted at the beginning of the son's earthly ministry this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 When it says that the Father hath given all things into the Son's hand, we must understand that mediatorial kingdom which in the eternal counsels of the Trinity has been appointed to Christ. By the terms of the everlasting covenant, the Father has given to the Son power over all flesh to quicken whom he will, to justify, to sanctify, to keep, and to glorify his people, to judge and finally punish the wicked and unbelieving and at last to take to himself a kingdom over all the world, and put down every enemy under his feet. These are the all things of which John speaks. Christ, he would have us know, has the keys of death and hell in his hand, 
and to him alone men must go if they want anything for their souls calvin observes on this verse the love here spoken of is that peculiar love of god which beginning with the son flows from him to all creatures for that love with which embracing his son he embraces us also in him leads him to communicate all his benefits to us by his hand quisnell remarks god loved the prophets as his servants but he loves christ as his only son and communicates himself to him in proportion to his love the prophets had only particular commissions limited to a certain time and certain purposes but christ has full power given him as the general disposer of all his father's works the executor of his designs the head of his church the universal high priest of good things to come the steward and disposer of all his graces chemnitius on this verse remarks the infinite wisdom and love of god in giving the management of our soul's affairs into christ's hand we are all naturally so weak and feeble that if anything was left in our hands we should never be saved we should lose all even sooner than adam did in paradise but christ will take care of all committed to his charge and our wisdom is to commit all things to him as st paul did second timothy chapter one verse twelve verse thirty six he that believeth son hath life in this verse john the baptist concludes his testimony to christ by a solemn declaration of the unspeakable importance of believing on him whether his disciples would receive it or not he tells them that life or death heaven or hell all turned on believing in this jesus who had been with him beyond the jordan the excellence of faith should be noted here like his divine master john teaches that believing on the son is the principal thing in saving religion believing is the way to heaven and not believing the way to hell the presentness of the salvation which is in christ should here be noted again like his divine master john teaches that a believer hath everlasting life pardon peace and a title to heaven are at once and immediately a man's possession the very moment that he lays his sins on jesus and puts his trust in him he that believeth not not see life the greek word here rendered believeth not is quite different from the one translated believeth at the beginning of the verse it means something much stronger than not trusting it would be more literally rendered he that does not obey or is disobedient to it is the same word so rendered in romans chapter two verse eight chapter ten verse twenty one first peter chapter two verse eight chapter three verses one and twenty the expression shall not see life must of course mean shall not see life if he continues impenitent and unbelieving and dies in that state the phrase to see life most probably means to taste enter enjoy possess life and must not be literally interpreted as seeing either with bodily or mental eyes the wrath of god abideth on him this concluding sentence of john the baptist's testimony is again very like his master's teaching he that believeth not is condemned already the meaning of the sentence is that so long as a man is not a believer in christ the just wrath of god hangs over him and he is under the curse of god's broken law we are all by nature born in sin and children of wrath and our sins are all upon us unpardoned unforgiven and untaken away until that day when we believe on the son of god and are made children of grace the sentence is a very instructive one and especially so in the present day 
I see in it an unanswerable reply to some grievous errors, which are very prevalent in some quarters. A. It condemns the notion, upheld by some, that under the gospel there is no more anger in God, and that he is only love, mercy, and compassion, and nothing else. Here we are plainly told of the wrath of God. It is clear that God hates sin. There is a hell. God can be angry. Sinners ought to be afraid. B. It condemns the notion, maintained by some, that the elect are justified from all eternity, or justified before they believe. Here we are plainly told that if a man believe not on the Son, God's wrath abideth on him. We know nothing of any one's justification until he believes. Those whom God predestinates, God calls and justifies in due season, but there is no justification until there is faith. C. It condemns the modern idea that Christ by his death justified all mankind and removed God's wrath from the whole seed of Adam, and that all men and women are justified in reality, although they do not know it, and will all finally be saved. This idea sounds very amiable, but it is flatly contrary to the text before us. Here we are plainly told that until a man believeth on the Son of God, the wrath of God abideth on him. Finally, it condemns the weak and false charity of those who say that preachers of the gospel should never speak of God's wrath, and should never mention hell. Here we find that the last words of one of Christ's best servants consist of a solemn declaration of the danger of unbelief. The wrath of God is John's last thought. To warn men of God's wrath, and of their danger of hell, is not harshness, but true charity. Many will go to hell because their ministers never told them about hell. In leaving the passage, the variety of expressions used by John the Baptist concerning our Lord Jesus Christ is very worthy of notice. He calls him the Christ, the Bridegroom, him that cometh from above, him that testifieth what he hath seen and heard, him whom God hath sent, him who has the Spirit without measure, him whom the Father loves, him into whose hands all things are given, him in whom to believe is everlasting life. To talk of John the Baptist's knowledge of divine things as meagre and scanty in the face of such a passage as this is, to say the least, not wise, and argues a very slight acquaintance with Scripture. To suppose, as some do, that the man who had such clear views of our Lord's nature and office could afterwards doubt whether Jesus was the Christ is to suppose what is grossly improbable. The message that John sent to Jesus when he was in prison was for the sake of his disciples, and not for his own satisfaction. Matthew chapter 11 verse 3, etc. End of section 14